pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. All right, good evening. Um, this is the February 1st regular meeting of the San Francisco Police Commission. Uh, before we call our first agenda item, uh, I'll note that um, I'm Commissioner Kevin Benedicto, and um, our, our president is out today, and our vice president is en route. And so uh, if there are no objections from my fellow commissioners, I've been asked by our vice president en route to chair for a few minutes while he works his way through traffic. Um, uh, Commissioner, may I speak for a minute? Yeah, yes. Um, I have no objection tonight, but first off, I, uh, I would like to ask the uh, city attorney uh, if the president and vice president aren't uh, present, who is designated to lead the meeting? Good evening, commissioners. So under the rules of order, there is nobody who's designated. So you have a couple of options. You could have a pro tem, you could have an election in order to appoint someone as a pro tem, or you could um, allow Commissioner Benedicto, if there's no objection, as I heard you state, chair the meeting while uh, Commissioner Vice President uh, Carter Oberstone makes his way to the meeting. All right, so uh, for the record, uh, as I said, I have no objection tonight. I, I would like uh, my fellow commissioners, do any of you have any objections? No. I have no objection as well. No okay. objection. So, but the point I want to make is that um, that the precedent of um, of the I'm not the senior commissioner of the group here tonight. Uh, commissioner Yee is, and I think it's, it's incumbent on the president or the vice president, if they're not going to be here to start the meeting, that they at least notify the senior member and make an attempt to uh, indicate who they wish to uh, chair the meeting. And I want to make it clear that the agreement to go forward tonight is not a precedent that the president or the vice president can designate who leads, uh, who leads the meeting when uh, both of them are absent. Um, and I, I had a discussion with Commissioner uh, Benedetto, and hopefully you can resolve this in a future DGO. Uh, or, It'll be a commission resolution to our rules. Yes, but, um, but uh, as I said, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but thank you. Uh, Sergeant, please call the first item. Line item one, general public comment. At this time, the public is now welcome to address the commission for up to two minutes. I'm sorry, Sergeant, I didn't ask you to take roll. I apologize. Sure. All right. For taking roll, Commissioner Walker. Present. Commissioner Walker is present. Commissioner Benedicto. Present. Commissioner Yanez. Present. Commissioner Byrne. Here. Commissioner Yee. Here. Vice President Carter Oberstone is en route, and President Elias is absent for today. Also with us tonight, we have Chief Scott from the San Francisco Police Department and Chief of Staff Sarah Hawkins from the Department of Police Accountability. Thank line, you, Sergeant. Call line item one, general public comment. At this time, the public is now welcome to address the commission for up to two minutes on items that do not appear on tonight's agenda, but are within the subject matter jurisdiction of the police commission. Under police commission rules of order during public comment, neither police or DPA personnel nor commissioners are required to respond to questions by the public, but may provide a brief response. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available via phone by calling 415-655-0001 and entering access code 2480-547-6564. Alternatively, you may submit 
submit public comment in either of the following ways. Email the Secretary of the Police Commission at sfpd.commission at sfgov.org, or written comments may be sent via U.S. Postal Service to the Public Safety Building located at 1245 3rd Street, San Francisco, California, 94158. If you would like to make public comment, please approach the podium or press star 3. Good evening, everyone. Um, again, I'm back again concerning my son, Arbor Aracasa, who was murdered August 14th, and here is another year. This is a new year, and Happy New Year's, everyone. But um, again, I am still without a son. This is my son, Arbor Aracasa. Still, his case isn't solved. I'm still out there on the battlefield every day you know, we were just at a rally today uh, for uh, Tyree Nichols. And I say this, you have the either, it's either the community violence, whether you get killed by the police, or community violence. What's the difference? The bullet is still the same. And us as mothers are still grieving for our children. So whether it's police killings or community violence, there's no name on the bullet. Our children are still being murdered. I still walk around with these pictures of all the unsolved homicides that are still not solved to this day, to this day. These cases aren't solved. What do we do about it? How long is mothers like myself going to continue coming here? I wish I didn't have to do this. I, I'm, I'm waiting for the days that I can show up in court and talk to the perpetrators and ask them why. Because this is what they left me, with me, me standing over my son's grave. I have to show this because I want people to see what I feel. This is my son again, his body. This is what I remember, even though I remember the happy times. No mother should have to do this. Please help solve my son's case. Thank you. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Hi, this is Barry Toronto. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes, good evening. Uh, I wanted to welcome Commissioner Elias, of course, but she's out as the new president. Uh, so, but I, I do, I'm glad that the uh, top brass in the police department are there because we have a problem. At night, starting at six o'clock on Saturday, they blocked off all the streets around Union Square. It took me at least 25 minutes with passengers from Fisherman's Wharf to get to the uh, Grand Hyatt. And, and the officers would not let me through. I thought, as part of I'm the transit first policy, we are allowed to get through the barricades. And in fact, um, uh, the, 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 early, the early previous day in the morning, at, at 10 to 4 in the morning, 10 to 4 in the morning, I was given a call by the Hilton to go pick up someone to take them to the airport from the Grand Hyatt. It took me forever. One, some of the police officers were sleeping. Two, I had to argue with them that I'm allowed to get through and finally get through and I said, Kearney Street, come all the way around to Sutter. And then I had to convince the police officer I had an appointment. So then I get there and it turns out the passenger left, was gone. 
and I wasn't very far away. So I'm asking you, how do I file a claim for $60 for lost income of something beyond my control that you did not inform us, that, uh, inform the hotel that you, you can't, we can't provide tax service to the lodging establishments within the closed off area? I think it's an, over, an overreach and an overkill to block off even a greater area of Union Square than when they did it for, uh, for, uh, for previously in December uh, and early January for, for protecting the businesses from looting. This is because you thought the violent protests would, would cause that. So I don't know how much time I have left, but I, I mean, we need to. Thank you, caller. <clears throat> Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. My name is Susan Buckman, and I live in District 6. I'm a member of Wealth and Disparities in the Black Community, founded by Felicia Jones. I read Chief Scott's statement on the murder of Tyree Nichols. He praised the swift response of the Memphis police chief. I thought that was ironic coming from Chief Scott, who has shown himself to be a model of delaying tactics and obstruction when it comes to police reform. Then I thought again, what was so praiseworthy about the Memphis police chief's actions? Firing those officers and having them charged with, mur with murder was the bare minimum she could do. What would have been praiseworthy is if she had ensured that something like that could never happen in the first place. She could have disbanded the Scorpion unit, which had a long reputation for brutality, before they had killed a man. Reacting after the fact to a threat you knew was imminent, even inevitable, is nothing to be praised for. If Chief Scott wants to condemn, condemn the death of Tyree Nichols, he should do something instructive to make sure something like this can never happen in San Francisco. San Francisco. Fire the corrupt and brutal cops who don't see black San Franciscans as human beings deserving of life and liberty. Stop the POA from protecting those officers. And most importantly, ban all minor traffic stops. Mr. Nichols was pulled from his car and tased during a traffic stop. It was the beginning of the brutal torture that led to his death. When we look at Memphis, the question is not if something like this could happen in San Francisco. The question is when. Thank you. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Oh, hello. Good, or good evening, everyone. My name is David Calderon and I'm calling in regards to San Francisco Murder Investigation 92154783. That person is my mother, Carmelita Holbrook, and I'm here to ask the public and the commission to please help me hold the San Francisco Police Officer Accountability as well as the San Francisco Police Department accountable in delaying my justice. These agencies have made a mockery of me, my family, and the crimes that we have survived. One example of the inappropriate tactics is by Mr. Eric Baltazar at the SFPOA, where I have requested to file a complaint with his HR department, and he went ahead and created a fake extension line where he's directing only my communications to go there, and he does not answer me. He is aware that his investigators have misdocumented the nature of my complaint. It is not fair for a survivor to come forth, share their stories, and have these agencies change the truth to fit something that it is not. 
thus delaying my ability to engage in the criminal justice system. I thank you for your time. And again, I ask the commission as well as the public to help me. Thank you. Thank you, caller. And that is the end. We have one more. Good evening, everyone. I'm Ramona Burton. I'm just here again to remind you all. Thank you. Again, to remind you all of my brother, Mark Anthony Coates. Um, and I appreciate the caller before as well and sympathize with him. But just reminding you guys that we all want justice for our loved ones. Thank you. And that's the end of public comment. Thank you, Sergeant. Next item, please. Line item two, adoption of minutes, action for the meetings of January 11th and January 18th, 2023. Can I get a motion? Motion to adopt the minutes. Second. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. I'm sorry. For members of the public that would like pick, pick, to make public comment regarding line item two, the adoption of minutes, please approach the podium or press star three. And there is no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have six yeses. Line item three, Chief's Report, Discussion. Weekly crime trends and public safety concerns. Provide an overview of offenses, incidents, or events occurring in San Francisco having an impact on public safety. Commission discussion on unplanned events and activities that Chief describes will be limited to determining whether to calendar for a future meeting. Chief Scott. Thank you, Sergeant Youngblood. Good evening, Vice President Carter Overstone, uh, Commissioners, uh, Acting Executive Director, um, <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had a brain fade there and the public. Um, as we uh, was noted by President Elias at, in our last police commission meeting, I am going to, um, I'm going to have the crime statistics posted and not go into detail on the crime statistics, but I will just give an overall on that. Our part one or, or serious crime, we're down 20% over last year. And again, this is you know, month one into the year, so. Uh, we're not going to make too much out of that. We definitely would rather be down than up, but uh, we'll see how the rest of the year pans out in terms of this reduction. But we will do everything we can to continue to drive crime down. I'm um, going to talk about some specific incidents that happened over the last reporting period. And beginning with um, a homicide that occurred during this reporting period, this was on the 700 block of Missouri on January 28th. 2023 at 8.18 p.m. Officers responded to a shot spotter activation where multiple spent cartridges were located, as well as bullet holes in the building and vehicles. Officers saw a vehicle fleeing the area, and based on the description uh, involved in this particular crime, officers went in pursuit onto the 280 South Brown Freeway, and the pursuit ended when the suspect vehicle was lost in the area of Eastmore, the Eastmore exit in Daly City on the 280 Freeway. Uh, 
Personnel from the San Francisco General Hospital advised that a victim arrived by a private vehicle and was in critical condition. That victim later succumbed to his injuries and this shooting resulted in a homicide. At this time, there are no arrests and the investigation is ongoing. Um, there was a suspicious death that occurred in the 500 block of Spear in the Bayview. Officers re responded to the Hunters, Hunters Point Naval Shipyard regarding a deceased person inside an abandoned building. Uh, an investigation took place on scene and the medical examiner responded and determined the death to be suspicious. The victim uh, was identified as a missing person who was last seen on January 12, 2023. That investigation is ongoing and uh, there's a lot to un uncover in this investigation to see exactly what was the cause of death. But our homicide unit has that investigation um, and is investigating. There was one non-injury shooting during the reporting period. This was on January 25th at 7.35 p.m. at California and Polk in the Northern District. Two victims were struck by gunfire. The officers responded to calls regarding a shooting and located one individual who had been shot in the buttock area. Several witnesses were interviewed revealing a shootout had occurred between the, the person shot and two unknown suspects who had fled prior to the officer's arrival. A bystander was hit in the leg by a stray bullet. The individual who was shot was transported and listed in critical condition and is believed to be possibly involved in the shooting. The bystander was treated with non-life-threatening injuries. That uh, investigation is ongoing and the person, one of the victims, uh, is believed to possibly be involved in the, in the shootout. So investigation ongoing, no arrests have been made yet on that particular case. Um, I want to talk about a couple of significant arrests as well. We had two homicide arrests during this period. The first one was from a November 11th, 22, uh, 2022 homicide. On January 28th, Tenderloin footbeat officers in the area of 7th and Market recognized the suspects from that homicide and detained him without, or them without incident. At the time of the detention, a loaded and concealed firearm was located. During the interview, probable cause was developed to arrest both suspects, both from San Lorenzo for the homicide and additional charges. And that particular homicide was in the area of Grove and Larkin Street, the original homicide. And again, that was on, from November 11th, 2022. The second arrest was from a September 8th, 2021 homicide that occurred at approximately 6.30 a.m. A male victim at that time was suffering from a possible stab wound and was located by officers who rendered aid and the victim later succumbed to his injuries after being transported to the hospital. During the investigation, a 27-year-old uh, suspect, San Francisco resident, was identified as the principal suspect. Probable cause was developed, an arrest warrant was issued, and on January 20th, 2023, the suspect was detained by Milpitas Police Department officers booked into Santa Clara County Jail for a charge of murder related to the San Francisco homicide. Uh, both investigations are still ongoing, although arrests have been made. And again, anyone with any additional information or new information on those two cases or any other cases, you can dial 415-575-4444 and you can remain anonymous if you want to report on a crime. Uh, two other significant incidents, carjacking of an elderly couple. This occurred at Laguna and Lumbar Street in the Northern District. One uh, elderly victim was outside of her vehicle pumping gas when the second victim remained in the vehicle. 
two subjects approached, two people approached with a handgun and ordered the victim out of the vehicle. The victim uh, was then approached and a struggle ensued over the victim's purse. The victim was thrown to the ground and actually dragged around the gas station until she uh, released control of the purse. Uh, that victim was left on the ground in front of the vehicle as the two people entered their vehicle and fled, hitting one of the victims with the car. Um, actually, with the victim's vehicle. So they jumped in the victim's vehicle and fled. The victim uh, sustained multiple injuries, was transported, uh, non-life-threatening injuries, and the victim, too, was not injured. No arrests have been made. That investigation was ongoing. The last significant event was threats to a Jewish community high school, which occurred on January 26 at 2.43 p.m., 1800 block of Ellis. An unknown suspect telephoned the Jewish community high school, spoke with staff, a staff member, and stated two people were coming to the school with AK-47s. There was a, a large amount of static on the phone. This person was difficult to hear. And we have traced the, at least where the call originated from, which was out of state. Officers responded, conducted a search of the school with negative results. So that follow-up is being done by our Special Investigations Division. And this is one of many that we have seen in our city and actually regionally and nationally of late with these types of school threats. Uh, major events this Saturday will be the Lunar New Year Parade. Uh, the San Francisco Police Department will be deployed heavily for the parade as we always are and we will also participate in the parade. So that is February 4th uh, in Chinatown, and we invite the public to attend. It's a year, year, year in and year out, a really, really great event. And uh, with that, I think my uh, time has expired, and happy to answer any questions, Vice President. Uh, this might be a first, Chief. I don't see any, uh, any names in the queue for you, so... Oh, oh, late, oh, late breaking. Okay. Commissioner Yee. Uh, thank you, Chair. Um, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Uh, Chief, um, I know throughout the years you've been, uh, I guess uh, your members has been uh, very uh, active in the Chinese New Year parade and keeping us safe. Um, looking forward to another uh, great parade, too. Uh, just over this last couple of weeks, uh, has uh, quite a, quite a few uh, ch um, critical incidents that happened in our Chinese community, um, and I uh, <clears throat> want to thank the uh, I guess the sheriff and then the tax squad that did stop the guy from com completing more stuff. So I thank those police down in I think it was Torrance, right, California, and uh, so keep safe. Um, um, that's what I say, and, and again, to the family of, uh, well, what happened, well, I'll just keep it at that. Uh, that's all I have to report. Thank you. All right, seeing no names in the queue, can we go to public comment, please? Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding the chief's report, please approach the podium or press star three. Again, I'm back again, and even though I'm still talking about my child, I am still, uh, again, I put up this picture right here. Well, I can hold it here. You can see it. You can bring it back to this, where the police officer versus community violence, the bullet is the same. 
we still hurt. We still have pain as mothers. I still come here and ask him in pleading for justice for my son, Aubrey Abracasa. I show these pictures and mostly I show the names of the perpetrators that murdered my child. He's laying here lifeless, lifeless. Each time I look at this, I cry again. And I need to continue to do this because if I don't, who's gonna do it? Who's gonna do it? My son is gone. I fought for him in life and I'm gonna fight for him in death. I am his voice now. And this is what they left me with, a corcus. I'm never gonna have my son back again, but I do want justice for my child, let alone all the other homicides that are out there unsolved. Unsolved homicides, that's my quest. I'm tired of climbing up on a pole in front of my house for someone to take the, the reward poster down. This reward poster with the $250,000 reward. People don't like this little black face up there and I'm tired of it, but I will keep putting it up. We have no venue for our children. Where are we gonna put these? At 850? We need a venue for our children. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Good evening, um, Commissioner. My name is Cheryl Thornton, and I am a resident of San Francisco District 10. I'm calling in um, after hearing uh, Ms. Paulette Brown speak. Um, I, uh, it is, if she is correct, and I don't understand how in the world in San Francisco that so many black mothers have lost their children to homicide, and the murders have gone unsolved. Um, this, I don't know. Um, we need some. They, these mothers need resolution to um, what has happened to their children. It's not acceptable for people to be killed by gun violence, and ten years later, no one um, has solved the crime. So everybody is entitled to life, liberty, and justice. And so with that being said, please, please find a way to work on Ms. Paulette Brown and all the other cases that have gone unsolved in the black community because it's disproportionate and give these parents resolution. Thank you. Vice President Carter Oberson, that is the end of public comment. Thanks, Sergeant. Next item, please. Line item four, DPA Director's Report Discussion. Report on recent DPA activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to counter any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Um, Chief of Staff Hawkins. Thank you. Good evening, Vice President Carter Overstone, Commissioners, Chief Scott, members of the public. 
I too will not be just talking about numbers at the direction of the Commission, but focus on trends. Um, in the last two weeks, the primary allegation that DPA has received is um, that officers failed to take a required action, that officers failed, or I'm sorry, the officers behaved or spoke inappropriately, and that officers failed to properly investigate. In the past two weeks, we received 24 cases with a total of 52 allegations. In terms of general updates, I want to thank Commissioner Walker, who presided over the first trial that DPA has been involved in with her. So um, our attorney, Stephanie Wargo-Wilson, wanted me to highlight that this evening. Um, in terms of our audit, DPA is currently at work drafting the next interim report, which will focus on how SFPD audits electronic communications. As a reminder, we are producing smaller my audit director would hate me for saying this, mini audits that will be part of the larger audit report so that they're more digestible and issue focused. Um, in terms of outreach, DPA participated in the Richmond Station community meeting. We use those meetings as an opportunity to tell the public how they can file a complaint and what information DPA needs in order to investigate. We also use those meetings as an opportunity to explain our mediation program. Um, Diana Rosenstein from our office continues to work with Lieutenant Angela Wilhelm to do the station trainings, to go out to the district stations and explain to officers what the disciplinary process on both sides looks like and to answer their questions. So, so far I think eight stations are complete and by the end of March, all 10 district stations will have received that training. Um, one of the requests from President Elias was that DPA starts to present or to publish delays that we're experiencing in obtaining information from SFPD. Um, in terms of our investigations, there's nothing unreasonably delayed at this time period, so nothing to report there. In terms of audit, there were two outstanding recommendations for our original use of force audit that was published two years ago. As of today, I learned that that has been closed, so there's nothing outstanding in this moment for audit. In terms of DGOs, there are two outstanding issues that we wanted to highlight for the commission. One involves DGO 6.18. Um, in October, Commissioner Benedicto set a deadline of November 28th for SFPD to provide us with a draft of DGO 6.18, which is warrant arrests. As of yet, we don't have that draft, so that's something that we would like to push forward. Second is involving DGO 9.03. Um, which is DUI arrests. Uh, also in October, Commissioner Benedicto asked the department to set up a meeting with the assigned uh, deputy chief and subject matter expert. And as of yet, we haven't been able to get that meeting started. So that's one other area in terms of policy. I know there's a lot percolating with policy, but those are two things we would like to see move forward. Tonight with um, us, our senior investigator, Brent Bajan, who will be available if there are any complaint-related issues, and our director of policy, Janelle Kaywood, who will be speaking to you about the Sparks report um, later on in the agenda. And that is the end of my report. I'm happy to answer any questions you may have. Just thank you for the report. Thank, just two quick questions for me. On the use of force recommendations, was that the report that DPA did in coordination with the controller's office? Yes. And then could you just say what, if you have, if you, if you have the information available, what the recommendations were that were recently incorporated? I don't have in front of me which two recommendations they were. I know that there were two outstanding 
recommendations and there had been some back and forth between the controller's office and the department about um, documentation that those recommendations were closed. And my understanding is that as of today, the controller's office is satisfied that those two recommendations have been fulfilled. Great, thank you. Uh, Commissioner Benedicto? Yes, I just wanted. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. I just wanted to see, I know we're separately agendizing for a future meeting some of the, the missed deadlines issue, but I just wanted to know if on 6.1 and 9.03 that um, Acting Director Hawkins pointed out if, if the Chief wanted to, to say anything. Yeah, I will say this, and we do plan to actually agendize our full plan of how we are going to uh, prevent this from happening. And a lot of energy and time have been on that. And again, I, I have taken responsibility for the ones that we've been laid on. Um, but we do think we have a, a much, much better handle on things now, and I do would like to agendize that. As far as that particular DGO, that came up in our status meeting yesterday, uh, trying to find out exactly. The DGO, the draft is done, and it hadn't been presented to DPA yet. So I know there were some issues that were noted in uh, the conversation yesterday, but still, it was done, and it, it has not been presented to DPA. So I would ask that we agendize the full plan of what, how we're going to handle this, uh, something that we've already talked about and would like to bring to the commission so you all can actually, and the public can see what we're actually doing to resolve this matter and not have these things happen. Uh, and I would ask that to be agendized. Yeah, I, I think it will be. So is, it's your understanding then that 6.18, there's a draft that's ready to be presented to DPA and hasn't been yet? Yeah, 6.08 is the arrest warrant one, or is that the... Uh, Warrant arrest, 6.18. Warrant arrest, that one, yes. In my understanding, the draft has been done. There were some delays in getting the approval to send it to DPA, and but the draft has been done, so we will definitely get that to DPA. Can we have that transmitted to DPA by the end of the week, Chief? Yes. All right. Thank you. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item four, please approach the podium or press star three. Vice President Carter, so there is no public comment. Great, next item, please. Line item five, commission reports, discussion and possible action. Commission reports will be limited to a brief description of activities and announcements. Commission discussion will be limited to determining whether to calendar any of the issues raised for a future commission meeting. Commission president's report, commissioner's reports, and commission announcements and scheduling of items identified for consideration at a future commission meeting. Just two updates for me. Um, on January 11th, um, when we voted on DGO 9.07, our policy to curtail the use of pretext stops, um, Chief Scott spoke about some language that he had circulated the, the day before the, to the commission proposing some changes to the DGO and specifically wanting to include language that I think accurately describes what the DGO is doing, which is which is deprioritizing um, certain low-level stops. Um, I just wanted to provide the public with an update that the commission does plan on getting back to Chief Scott by the end of this week, early next week at the latest, with some proposed language to, to see if it would um, satisfy Chief Scott's concerns and. Um, you know, here, get, you know, solicit Chief Scott's reactions to that. So, so we are working on that, and we are moving forward on that. Um, 
the other update for me, and I'll be brief because um, I know other commissioners attended the event as well, but attended the, the latest graduation from the 277th, I think, um, recruit class. Um, it, was, it was great to be in attendance. Um, I am very grateful for the, the 12 officers who are joining the ranks of the department. Wish we had more, of course, like, like others, but very grateful um, to those folks and just wanted to publicly congratulate them on their incredible accomplishment and congratulate their, their families who also um, undoubtedly sacrificed to allow them to go through um, an extensive um, and exhaustive training, training protocol. So that's it for me. I forgot I have to call on people. Cindy's not here. Ask Commissioner Walker. We don't go without you. Um, I do, I want to um, jump on. I wasn't able to go to the graduation. It's hard for me to get around to more than one or two events a day on crutches. But, um, but I really want to congratulate um, those who graduated from the academy this time around. And... Um, I also wish that there were more than, I think only 12 graduated, even though 13 went in. Um, but I also just want to mention and actually bring up the issue that we've committed to 30 by 30, and there were no women in our class. And um, it troubles me a lot. And I, I hope that we can maybe get an update uh, as an agenda item on what we're doing within the department to encourage recruitment of women into the academy. Um, I have to say that I took a lift over to the meeting this afternoon and I recruited the driver um, who told me that before she moved to our country she was um, on the force in Puerto Rico and I said, I have a job for you. <laughs> so I sent her the new, the new um, recruitment video and hopefully um, we all can be doing that. Um, we really, you know, having folks from the community, um, keeping our community safe is really what works. So I want to commit to that. Anything I can do to help Chief, but I would like to get a, an update on what we're doing. Um, I, I have concerns that um, some part of our system and some part of the equipment we use may be obstacles for women. Um, um, the shooting range, I think, was an issue, and we have had this ongoing issue of the guns um, and alternative guns that work better. Um, and I don't want to say smaller hands. There's <laughs> too many jokes about that. But, you know, it's, it's a reality. I mean, I feel like we need to really look at the systematic obstructions that make it harder um, and try and resolve those. So um, I'm happy to help with that. Um, I also... Um, on the ongoing conversations the chief and I have been involved with um, around patrol specials, I'm continuing to meet and talk with folks who are interested uh, from the business community and doing what they can to uh, create partnerships um, and um, coordinating and collaborating with, with private security, essentially, that's allowed uh, in our charter, but um, really using all we can to fill the gaps um, that, that kind of vex our keeping our streets safe. Um, I especially was interested because there was an article in the paper that there's been a pretty extensive grant to um, the alchemy groups to 
respond to homeless issues on the street and um, without training and collaboration and coordination, that's not gonna work. So I, I really hope that we can be proactive in, in figuring out what training is needed and how we can you know, be partners with all of these folks out in the street. Um, again, I'm happy to be part of that conversation. And then the last thing is that um, I've sent to um, DPA and I sent to you too a, a communication I got just regarding some of the technology available for um, monitoring and um, controlling, if you were, um, wearable cameras and maintaining that data, um, making it easier on the officers using it. Um, I'm gonna be meeting with um, one of the people from that company just to see what they're to, to be to get a primer before we meet I think we're meeting collectively and of course you're involved I think that's in February later in February with DPA um, a lot of what we're talking about is how to automate and take take advantage of technology and helping keep our streets safe especially locally as we have um, the shortage of officers and um, no quick fix for that, that we really do have to see what technology is available that we can use with comfort um, and maintain the data and um, make it efficient. So I've been um, looking at that. So, and the DGOs that I've been working on, I think that we're also waiting for some final draft language to, to go to the next step. Um, we're all within our deadline, I believe. So um, that's it from me, thank you. Thanks, and I'll just say on the 30 for 30 pledge, um, I believe the department as part of that pledge needs to re make biannual reporting on their progress. So maybe next reporting period, we can agendize it when they do their first report. I think that's a great suggestion. Great. Commissioner Benedicto. <clears throat> Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Um, as the Vice President noted, um, I, I was also in attendance to the graduating class of our 277th recruit class, and I'm privileged to speaking to those officers. Um, they were a great group, and it's nice to see. It was disappointing that uh, there weren't more uh, any women in that class. I, I was heartened that four of the officers were bilingual. I know there's a great need for bilingual officers, uh, including one Cantonese-speaking speaking officer. Um, and I also want to commend the, uh, the recruits elect a class speaker, and um, the new officer that was elected the class speaker blew all the rest of us out of the water with a really, really tremendous remarks about the, the duty that they feel and the importance uh, of, of empathy in what they do. And it really was um, really heartening to see and a privilege uh, to attend that. Uh, as Vice President Carter Oberstone said, we're continuing to work with um, Chief Scott uh, to um, see if there's additional amendments we can make to 9.07 to bring that language um, into clearer focus, uh, which brings me to the next thing I wanted to report. Um, you know, it was on January 11th that this commission voted to advance DGO 9.07, um, which is the most comprehensive um, policy reforming traffic stops in the country. And on that night, I read a list of names. I read and noted that Philando Castile had a broken taillight, that Willie McCoy was sleeping in his car, and that Dante Wright had an air freshener, and all three uh, died unnecessarily. And it's deeply disheartening that less than a month since then, we have a name uh, to add to that list, to add Tyree Nichols, who for an uncorroborated traffic stop, uh, just 60 yards from his home, uh, for anyone who's seen any parts of 
the video uh, or watched any of the memorial today, it's, it's incredibly heartbreaking. And he died on January 10th before this was a national story. Uh, the, right before this commission acted decisively on this traffic stop policy and um, the loss is, is devastating, but I couldn't be prouder to have cast my vote that night. I couldn't be prouder that this city is now on its way to joining the ranks of cities that are leading the nation on reform in the area of traffic stops and traffic enforcement. Um, something that Vice President Carter Oberstone said uh, is that this reform, like so many others, uh, whether it was banning the carotid, um, will, will be seen as being on the right side of history. And I didn't expect such a stark early reminder of what the other side of that looks like, but um, it, it really was that. And so I want to offer you know, our, our condolences to um, the family of Tyree Nichols and um, continue to express that we're hope that more cities take aggressive and decisive action on, on traffic stops and traffic enforcement. That's all. Thank you, Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, uh, Vice President Carter Oberstone, and thank you all for uh, pronouncing my name a little differently. I appreciate the effort. Uh, I'm going to make my report pretty brief. Um, I do want to recognize it and, and acknowledge that it is Black History Month, and it is really heartbreaking to, um, you know, see what has happened since the outcome of that, that video being released. And I think uh, it, it really does um, underscore the importance of the work that we're doing here tonight and, and the work that we do here to try to, uh, you know, bring more transparency to this department and to improve the outcomes for people of color in this, in San Francisco and to set the standard hopefully for the nation to, to be able to, um, you know, adopt some of the directions that we take. So. Um, with that, uh, you know, I think every day we should celebrate the contributions of people of color, immigrants, and, uh, you know, everyone that contributes to improving uh, San Francisco and this great nation. So uh, with that, I will, uh, you know, I had a couple of meetings. Uh, we did have a good conversation as we're revising the uh, 7.01 Juvenile DGO. Um, it has been a very, very you know, um, rich and very opinionated group as, as we like to have because, you know, conversation and dialogue and discourse is the way that we come to agreements. And I think it's healthy dialogue. So I'm, I'm happy that we are in that process. And I had someone reach out to me. The uh, president of the Juvenile Probation Commission reached out uh, and she wants to have a joint commission. As we're talking about, uh, Commissioner Walker mentioned, you know, I, I think it's a great success for the city to implement another uh, alternative to, uh, you know, uh, responding to the homelessness issues that the city faces. Along the same lines, there are many programs and there is very little centralized coordination of all these efforts is my understanding. And the public has a challenge kind of you know, figuring out who and how to contact. And I definitely do not want us to have the same experience as we move forward with 
um, expanding diversion alternatives, which is what the Juvenile Probation Commission and the Juvenile Probation Department has been tasked to do um, as uh, you know, the legislation was modified to ensure that we're working towards closing down that juvenile justice center. And the fact that we are intending to expand detention alternatives, I think really um, requires some collaborative conversations. And so I will want to request that we agendize this um, in the next couple of months. I will submit the paperwork, uh, Sergeant Youngblood, and I will have uh, Commissioner Brodkin, uh, President Brodkin, uh, and update President Elias on figuring out the mechanics behind that because I shouldn't be leading that. I know that that's something that the presidents more than likely will be leading. So that's one of the updates that I have. Uh, we also had a conversation with the uh, early intervention system, DGO revision, the folks from uh, Benchmarks. Uh, gave us a little update on the wonderful technology that the department's gonna be adopting, real time, uh, you know, AI informed. I mean, it's exciting if you're into data and how it could help us improve the world. And so I know I had requested it at some point um, last year, but I understand there's a little bit of a delay, so there isn't necessarily a, you know, pressing need to have the presentation now, but I think the more we can communicate to the rest of the commission and to the public uh, the investment that's being made and the direction that the department is taking with this uh, early intervention system kind of uh, remodel and reboot, I think it, it will really benefit us. So I'd like to agendize that. And then um, I think that that is my report. I have one other item that I uh, want to check in with the chief before I kind of agendize. So thank you all. Thank you. Commissioner Byrne. Uh, thank you, <clears throat> Vice President Carter Overstone. Um, <clears throat> on, uh, on January 20th, I had an opportunity in, uh, during the swing shift uh, to go down to the Tenderloin Station for a ride-along. Uh, I, I wanted to note that uh, that now there is a plain closure unit operating in the Tenderloin um, uh, trying to deal uh, with the ongoing issues there. But what I also uh, want, want the public to be aware of, I had an opportunity uh, to walk with Sergeant Melissa Chung at, a, at approximately... Uh, nine o'clock that evening we were walking on 7th street between mission and market uh, an individual came up and said that this middle-aged woman had overdosed and she was uh, lying on uh, on one of these marble uh, uh, benches um, the person indicated that uh, they had already applied at least one narcan uh, to her um, she looked comatose when i saw her uh, Sergeant Chung uh, immediately um, uh, gave her another dose of Narcan. Fortunately, a uh, passerby came by and another dose of Narcan was administered. Uh, when, the when at least the third dose was administered, um, the, the, there started to be movement. All the time, Sergeant Chung uh, monitored to make sure that she had a pulse. The alleged drug dealers were across the street towards 7th and Mission. Uh, these merchants of death were just watching us because we were interfering with their trade. 
by, by Officer Chung trying to save the life of, an, of another human being. Uh, fortunately, uh, the uh, woman re uh, was revived, the ambulance arrived, and she was uh, taken away. Uh, this action by the San Francisco police uh, obviously is to be commended. Uh, I was uh, privileged to watch a life being saved, but what I was uh, disturbed about was that the midnight shift that evening, what I was told would consist of four officers and a sergeant. This in the most dangerous part of San Francisco in a concentrated area. Chief, please send more people down there. The, the, that same evening between at UN Plaza, less than a half a block away, there was an individual who allegedly was knifed. It is clear that his face was bloodied. That was within an hour of the revival. Um, San Francisco can do better than this. This has to be a priority. I understand that the number of people that have died of overdoses in San Francisco has gone down, but it has not gone down enough. And I believe, and I think I speak for the majority of San Franciscans, that we believe that this is a priority, saving lives, safety with respect. This is a priority um, to do this. And the resources that are dedicated to such issues as Union Square during the festive holiday period, um, the parades that take place in San Francisco, this needs to be a priority because what we are talking about is life and death. And to me, the sanctity of life, these individuals that are addicted deserve second chances. Sergeant Chung gave that middle-aged lady a second chance. We need to do more. We need to give people more second chances, Chief. Put down a command thing in the thing, but something different, ha the status quo is unacceptable. It is just, it is just unacceptable. It was pure chance that, that we walked up that street at that time. Otherwise, this poor lady would have been another statistic. We, I mean, the idea, I, I, I intend to go back. Uh, this made me more resolute to go back again in the evening time. Yes, it's clear that during the day, the tenderloin is better. No doubt about it, Chief, and the department deserves credit. But I'm ashamed to be a San Franciscan when I see that in the evening time. It, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to watch those people across the street who undoubtedly one of them had supplied that lady that almost killed her that night. And please, Chief, we need to do something more. Anyway, that's my report. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Commissioner Byrne. Commissioner Yee. Uh, thank you, Chair uh, Carter Oberson. Uh, just to report back on um, Friday, uh, January 20th in uh, San Francisco, Chinatown, we had a little town hall meeting. I want to thank Assistant Chief uh, David Lazar for reporting out to our community uh, some of the strategies that they're looking forward to using whatever uh, available staff they have avail available to them including, the, I guess, the San Francisco uh, police uh, ambassadors that are available to help us out in the district, keeping the eyes and ears uh, for us. Uh, 
Also, we want to talk about, um, um, I guess, this coming Sunday, February 5th, is uh, there will be a uh, lunar year celebration over in the Visitation Valley. Everybody's welcome to come. It starts at 1030 and ends about 5. It's given, uh, sponsored by the uh, Asian Pacific American Community Center. Uh, I'll be out there and uh, hopefully the community will join us as well. And hopefully we have great weather at that time. I just want to echo what uh, Commissioner Jim Burns has said. Uh, drug use out there in the Tenderloin is deadly. Fentanyl is, is no joke to play around with. So hopefully more, we can do more um, maybe have the urban alchemy into the evening or the midnight graveyard shift. So that's maybe something we can work on, building better, you know, relationships and helping out uh, out there. So that's my report. Thank you. Thank you, Sergeant. Could we go to public comment? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item five commission reports, please approach the podium or press star three. Yes, um, Ms. Brown, I, I, I just want to commend the person that uh, saved that young lady's life because not only do we die by gun violence, there's drug issues out there, there's domestic violence, child abuse, all of that is going on and our children are dying and they're homeless and there's mental health going on with these families. It's a wonder that I am not one of those mothers that have self-medicated because my son was murdered. But I'm here, and this is my therapy. This is my therapy coming here. So I commend that officer for doing that. A lot of people would not do that. And I also just want to say, you know, anyone that has any information concerning my son, Aubrey Abracasa, please call um, the tip line 415-575-4444. His case number is 060-862-038. That mother, the mother of that young lady, will get to see her again. She has a second chance. So, I just wish my son had a second chance. And with that, I thank you. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Hi, good evening, commissioners. This is Cheryl Thornton, San Francisco resident, District 10. Um, I want to also commend Officer Chung and all the officers that work in the most dangerous part of San Francisco, the Tenderloin. Uh, I, uh, I too work in the Tenderloin in a DP, at a DPH clinic, and um, we see um, overdoses happening um, regularly. Um, we also, you know, give um, naloxone out to uh, people in the Tenderloin. But uh, I would also like to say that. Um, uh, someone mentioned sending more officers and help down there. There is, they need more help in the Tenderloin, uh, especially I can imagine at the night, in the nighttime. So I wanted to um, 
um, also mention that. And then lastly, um, I heard one of the commissioners in the report say that there were no women in this last graduating class. And I would like to suggest that if this is not already happening, that the police department develop um, programs, in, especially in the public schools, early on to create pipelines um, so that um, for career opportunities uh, in high school or even maybe younger, especially in districts where um, they are um, certain, um, there's underrepresentation of um, certain um, ethnic groups, I guess I would say. So if they could, because I think the police have a lot to offer as far as uh, in the educational. Um, Thank you, caller. Vice President Carter Oberson, that is the end of public comment. Thank you, Sergeant. Next item, please. Line item six, Sparks Report, third and fourth quarter 2022, San Francisco Police Department presentation and Department of Police Accountability presentation. Discussion. Hi, uh, good evening, um, President, oh, sorry, Vice President Carter Oppenstone, um, Commissioners, Chief Scott, and uh, Chief of Staff, uh, Acting Director Hawkins. Um, my name is Dennis Toomer, and <clears throat> I'm the new captain of the Professional Standards and Principal Policing Unit. Um, I just wanted to say I'm, I'm glad to be here, and, and thanks for having me tonight. Um, my last assignment was with the Office of Equity and Inclusion, I established that unit and implemented our, um, our department's uh, racial equity and action plan. <coughs> Co-presenting with me tonight is Sergeant uh, Joelle Harrell. She is a supervisor in, uh, in the written director's unit. And I just want to make sure that we acknowledge her because her efforts sometimes get overshadowed because she's working behind the scenes. And she's very important to the work that we do. So I want to make sure that, that she's here to help um, represent the, the unit and to um, be acknowledged. Going forward, our vision for the unit, um, we would like to continue to build relationships with the Police Commission and Department of Police Accountability. We work very closely with Ms. Janelle Kaywood from DPA um, with almost daily communication. Um, we hope to extend that type of communication with all the stakeholders involved in, in this type of work. We want to strengthen our communication and work in collaboration effort with all of our DGOs and lastly, you want to enhance our project management systems and processes to effectively meet our time requirements. As demonstrated in our report and addendum, uh, WDU is a small unit that's producing a, a large amount of work. There are only five people in this unit, including myself, Lieutenant Altifer, um, Sergeant Harrell, Officer Walker Bardsley, and Ms. Gloria Rosalajos working under the direction of um, Executive Director McGuire. To date, we currently are processing 61 DGOs through the revision process. Um, that is a lot of work for, for a small amount of people. 
Um, this is my first time presenting uh, before, this, before this commission. Um, and this report reflects my understanding of how this report is, should be presented. However, if other items are, are needed or you'd like to see more items, um, we are definitely um, willing to communicate that in the future and we would appreciate any feedback that you all may have of us. Um, with that, uh, we'll start our, re our report items. Okay, I'm gonna go over quarter three and quarter four DGOs in progress from July, December 2022. DGOs adopted by the police commission, there are a total of five. Um, I can read the list, starting with DGO 3.01, written communications, DGO 3.07, Department Accident Review Board, DGO 3.17, Department Identification Cards, DGO 5.10, Use of Force, and DGO 8.02, Hostage and Barricaded Suspects. Those are the five that have been adopted by the Police Commission. The next group are DGOs that have been approved by the Police Commission for meet and confer. There's a total of six. DGO 2.01, General Rules of Conduct, 208, Peace Officer Rights, 313, Field Training Program and the DGO Manual, 524, Disengagement Policy, 8.01, Critical Incidents and Notifications, and 11.08, Grooming Standards. The next two are DGOs that have been submitted to Police Commission to be calendared. There are two. DGO 5.07, Rights of Onlookers. DGO 604, Assaults on Police Officers. DGO submitted to Chief Scott for review and approval to be forwarded to the Police Commission are DGO 11.13, it's a brand new DGO, um, directed recommended referrals to BSU. Drafts approved by the executive sponsor and DPA, they're waiting to be publicly posted. We have a total of five. DGO 305 Weapon Return Panel, DGO 3.12 Department Training Plan, DGO 7.04 Children of Arrested Parents, DGO 8.04 Critical Incident Response Team, DGO 10.02, which has now been combined with 10.04 and 10.05 Equipment. The next group are DGOs approved to be scheduled for simultaneous concurrence. We have seven. DGO 2.02, alcohol use by members. 2.03, drug use by members. 2.07, discipline process for sworn officers. 6.02, crime scene and physical evidence. 7.03, sex offenders. 9.02, vehicle accidents. And 9.03, DUI. The next group are drafts presented at simultaneous concurrence but have been returned to the SME for edits. DGO 2.06, vehicle collision involving members. DGO 6.05, death cases. DGO 9.04, seatbelt policy. The next group are DGOs drafted, presented to DPA to commence stage two of the DGO development process. We have three. DGO 1.06, which has been combined with 107, duties of commanding officers. DGO 5.06, citation release. DGO 9.05, traffic citation control. 
The next group are DGO drafts presented to DPA for review under the provisions of the old DGO 3.01 process. There are two, DGO 1.01, organizational structure, DGO 10.01, which has been combined with DGO 10.03 and 10.05 uniform. Any questions about those that I've read? Going to continue on reading. I have some that are highlighted for collaborative communication. Um, disengagement 5.24, um, critical incidents 8.01, and general rules of conduct DGO 2.01. These these DGOs stalled in the process due to com conflictions in the language. Um, each had to be reviewed concurrently. The Chief of Police worked with all the SMEs, DPA, and written directives to ensure the language was consistent. Um, the two DGOs that we have in working groups are DGO 7.01, Juvenile, and the Police Commission-led 9.07, Pretext Stops. That's it. Any questions? <laughs> okay. and, and so, um, in closing, the, the bottom line, the message we want to convey is that we want to continue to build our internal um, systems. We, we understand that we, we must meet our, our uh, deadlines or request extensions um, in a timely manner so that we're working on um, improving our process to meet our demands with our subject matter experts, our deputy chiefs, the Office of Policy and Public Affairs, and of course the Chief of Police. Um, for some of our operational investigator units, especially in the major crimes and special investigation areas, uh, we understand the need that we need to request extensions early if we know that the deadlines are going to meet a challenge. And so we, we understand that that's, that's on the forefront of, of our operations um, to make sure that we are communicative and that we're meeting our deadlines and moving forward. And, and the last thing we, we want to make sure that we do is try to build continue to build relationships. We've, we've started that um, process. We want to enhance um, our communication with, with all of the stakeholders. And, you know, we've started with um, DPA and Ms. Ms. Kaywood. We're starting to really get a really good working relationship. And we want to extend those same uh, relationships with DeWald as well. Um, and that concludes our report. We welcome any feedback about any questions. Is, is Ms. Kaywood also going to present on this same line item? It, do you mind if we hold questions until we hear both, or do, do you want to comment on this? Sure. Really quick, and, and part of my comments, I, I want to thank DPA and Ms. Kaywood. I, I just wanted to say this, because this is significant, I hope, to everybody. We are moving at a pace that we haven't done in the six years that I've been here. And understanding that we still have much work to do with some of the, the untimeliness and, and that will be fixed and we will, whenever uh, the commission agenda is at, go into more detail about what we're doing. The pace that we are moving at is, I don't know that we've ever moved at this pace. And so I just want to lift that up. I know we have work to do and I know it's not perfect and in many cases it's, you know, we've had some things that are broken in terms of timeliness. But I also want to point out, um, the work and the collaboration between DPA and the department. I know Ms. K. Wood is going to present, and I know we have some communications things that we need to clean up, and we will, and I'm confident that we will, but I do want to publicly thank not only the members of our department, but Ms. K. Wood in particular, because um, 
we are doing, in my opinion, some really good policy work together. Ms. Hawkins, Director Henderson, Ms. K. Wood, and others. I'm sure I'm missing a few names. And I want to make sure we lift that up. We're going to take responsibility for our shortcomings, but this pace is beyond anything that we've seen in my six years here. And I don't know if the department has ever moved this quickly on DGOs like we're doing right now. So we will fix our problems, but thank you for everybody to this point uh, for, for getting us to this point. So thank you for allowing me to say that. Uh, Chief of Staff Hawkins, do you want to go now or? Okay, perfect. It's relatively brief. I want to echo what the Chief said. Thank Ms. Kaywood, as well as the, the department, people who've been working on these projects and welcoming new people. I think it's a Herculean effort. The commission's involved and we really appreciate it. There is one thing with this particular report that I um, want to talk about and maybe just highlight right now and maybe we can have the conversation separately, which is the prioritization of the foot pursuit DGO and it's categorized as low priority. I, that might be because of timing or other issues that are important, but the way that it reads to the members of the community, a low priority DGO is not feasible or warranted. And I just can't let that stand on the record because I think, and I think the chief agrees because we've actually met and spoke about it. And it's actually work that has been talked about for years. We started it, um, we started the conversation with the training division who did some trainings before we recommended a formal written policy. And so I just would hope that maybe we could talk about uh, either using different language that is, it is a medium priority, just timing wise, we have a plan for that, as opposed to labeling in that way, because I think right now we're focused on traffic stops is the issue, but that recommendation came out of another OIS, as well as other best practices. So for the community to see it as low priority, um, to me is concerning. Thank you. Chief, I see your name back in the queue. No, okay. Great, thank you. I think we'll hear from Ms. Kaywood and then we'll reserve all our questions for then if that's all right. Okay. Thank you for the presentation. Good evening, Vice President Carter Oberstone, Commissioners Chief Scott and uh, Chief Sarah Hawkins and members of the community. I'm Janelle Kaywood. I am the Director of Policy at the Department of Police Accountability. I'm here to present a summary of DPA's policy work for the third and fourth quarter of 2022. As always, I'm happy to be here and uh, really excited to share some of our work with you. Sorry, guys. Thank you. Uh, in the third quarter, DPA recommended that uh, the police commission pass a resolution directing the police department to publish a calendar of meet and confer meetings and to provide a status update on non-confidential information of DGOs or in meet and confer. Um, although these proceedings are confidential, that we believe that the process should be transparent to the public. Next slide. Thanks. 
Uh, in the third and fourth quarter, DPA researched and provided recommend, uh, 92 recommendations on 17 DGOs. Uh, shout out to my colleague, Jermaine Jones, uh, who's been just wonderful to work with. Fun fact, our yearly total is uh, 142 recommendations on uh, 22 DGOs. I agree with Chief Scott that this is a, a very fast pace and, and, uh, and we are churning out more policy that, than ever has happened in the history of SFPD, at least since 1994, when a lot of these DGOs seems to have been written. Uh, we also jointly wrote DGO 5.07, rights of onlookers with Captain Tom Harvey of the training division, who is absolutely wonderful to collaborate with. He's talking later tonight, and uh, DPA can't say enough uh, good things about Captain Harvey. He's open, he's collaborative. Uh, we literally sat down and wrote the DGO together. So I just wanna thank him. Also, uh, I really wanna give a shout out to the written directives unit. In the second quarter, uh, Director Henderson and I reported on DGOs that had stalled. Uh, we were uh, frustrated, and I think it's important, I've said this before, but it's important for DPA to be unafraid and speak out when there are problems. Um, and we also need to speak out when good things have happened. And I really can't say enough good things about how written directives has really stepped up in the third and fourth quarter. Um, there's definitely kinks that need to be worked out with 3.01 in terms of you know getting DGOs in on a, getting drafts you know transferred back and forth in a timely way in public comment but written directives is really the framework that holds it all together and they just have done phenomenal work. So on behalf of, on behalf of DPA, I'd like to thank Lieutenant Eric Altifer, Captain Dennis Toomer, who's just been a wonderful addition to written directives and Sergeant Joelle Harrell. I agree, she's a bright light in the department and she's a joy to work with. I'd also like to thank Officer Walker Bardley, Bardsley and Gloria Rosalejos um, and there's more, but those are the ones that I work with on a daily basis, so I just wanted to say thank you. Next slide. Uh, in the third quarter, DPA participated in the commission's working group and the uh, Human Rights Commission's uh, listening sessions on curtailing pretext stops. We've been working on this for several years. Um, we're really proud of our work. We're proud of uh, the policy that's been put together, and we look forward uh, as it progresses through meet and confer. Next slide. Oh, um, DPA also recommended that SFPD form a working group with its technology unit, academic partners, DPA, and traffic stop data experts to make sure that the stop data the department's uh, churning out is up to date, that their systems are up to date, and that the data they're collecting is accurate and can be validated. So I believe uh, Deanna Oliva Aroche the police department's director of policy and public affairs. She and I have discussed this and we all agree that it's an important uh, step that needs to happen. Next slide. Foot pursuits. Um, I'm really excited about this policy. Thank you, Chief of Staff Hawkins for, uh, I would put this in the highest, uh, after traffic stops, the most important policy that's coming down the pike in the pipeline. Uh, DPA collaborated with top Captain Tom Harvey and the Field Tactics Force Options Unit to write a draft foot pursuit policy. 
this policy emphasizes sound tactics, which, is our, which are essential in these time-compressed, rapidly evolving situations. And the overarching goal of the policy is to conclude incidents as safely as possible for the pursuing officers, for the fleeing person, and the, and the public. And this policy reinforces already excellent training that's going on within the department. Um, so it really is a DGO that focuses on tactics. And uh, we just want to thank, again, Captain Harvey, Lieutenant Mike Nevin, Lieutenant Andrew Meehan, Sergeant Justin Bugarin, Sergeant John Crudo, Officer Pat Woods, uh, for lending their expertise and for their ongoing openness working with DPA. We've built up a trusting relationship and um, a, sort of a dynamic where we all can be truthful with one another and really we're really able to write good policy together. We worked on use of force together and we have the utmost respect for um, Captain Harvey and the FTFO unit. The next step for this important policy is public comment. We look forward to hearing from the officers and the community alike. We'll let everyone know uh, when this happens and we expect it to be robust. Thank you, that's all I have. Thank you. Are there any questions for either the department or me? Um, I have a couple comments um, and one question. So start with DPA since Ms. Kaywood presented last. Thank you for the presentation. Um, this is a comment, not a question. Um, I just really wanted to recognize the two recommendations that DPA made because I think uh, they're both very well taken and make a lot of sense. I think um, having open session um, check-ins on the um, calendaring of meetings that are happening and meet and confer is of a piece with the increased transparency into the meet and confer process that this commission has um, undertaken in the last few months, um, I just think that's that's a, a good government recommendation that that we should that we should adopt. Um, and I think the second recommendation about having, you know, an outside peer review or working group panel to evaluate the reliability of our data is another just common sense reform. And hopefully, we can get people to sign up for that. And assuming we can, I think that that we should implement that. So so thank you. Um, for the department, I just had one comment and one question. So thank you both for the presentation. And Captain Toomer, I know you said this is your first time presenting, so welcome. Um, just wanted to commend the department on the Sparks report. I know that in months past, some of my colleagues were a little bit um, critical of the formatting of the report and that it wasn't always clear what the status was the way it was indicated. Um, I. The current format is an incredible improvement, and um, the status is very clear for every DGO. It's very well organized and easy to follow, and I appreciate the addendum too, so that we're getting a heads up about what's coming down the pike. So, just wanted to recognize that and say thank you. Um, the other question I had, um, Captain Toomer, you mentioned that there's five um, individuals assigned to a written directives unit. And I'm just curious, do all of, are all of those folks spending 100% of their time on written directives, or do they also have responsibilities outside of WDU? So the, the officers, um, Sergeant, Sergeant Harrell and, and Walker Bardsley, you know, we have a staffing shortage. 
and so they are being sent out to do other duties besides the written directives unit. Um, but when they're when they're here, of course, that's their primary duty. But there's always an opportunity to go out and, and help with patrol and other and other things that we need to get done as a, as an organization. Great, thanks for that, sure. um, Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Um, just a couple of comments. I think echoing a lot of what's uh, been said by both uh, the department and and DPA. I, I really do want to commend the, the the written directives unit um, for their uh, and DPA for their excellent work here. You know, like like it's been said, there are some deadline issues that, that are serious we want to sort through, but that's not to undercut the tremendous work that's being done at written directives uh, and at DPA. Um, I also want to echo what, what Captain Toomer said and, and specifically commend um, Sergeant Harrell. Um, Commissioner Yanez and I have the benefit of working with her on our uh, very vibrant um, working group meetings on the, the juvenile orders, uh, DJO 7.01. There are a lot of opinions flying in the room, and Sergeant Harrell is simultaneously taking notes and pulling up things live and managing a rowdy team's call with people in person, and it's just, it's, it's tremendous work, and that's only a fraction of what we see. Um, so thank you for presenting, uh, to presenting to us. And I also want um, to commend my, my fellow commissioners. This body has been extraordinarily active at moving on those DGOs, you know, and, and under the leadership of President Elias, I think the, the great innovation of assigning DGOs to commissioners to shepherd through. Um, I, I'd spoken to the chief before because we were both working uh, 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 on reforms around the time that the, the Blue Ribbon Panel report came out. And so I, pu I pulled up a copy of that report, and uh, there was a five, there was a two year period where five DGOs were passed. Um, and that was considered an improvement over. Um, uh, an extended period of inactivity, including a year in which one DGO was passed. And so, and at that point, the vast majority of the department's general orders were from 1995. And so it's, I think, important to see how far this commission and uh, this department has come and DPA has come. They were still called OCC in that report uh, as a predecessor agency, but there's been a, a tremendous amount of progress. Um, I think that the the speed and effectiveness uh, of the commission, the department, and DPA um, is something that all three entities should be should be very proud of. Chief Scott, I just since she's in a room, I just wanted to give some credit and thanks to uh, Ms. Aja Steves from from um, Public Policy and Public Affairs, who, who actually helped Director McGuire and WDU work on the report that you commended. So I, I just want to give her some credit and acknowledgement because she's in the room for another presentation. But uh, Ms. Steve actually helped uh, Director McGuire and others uh, develop this format. So thank you. Commissioner Benedicto. Yeah, I forgot. I, I wanted to echo what Acting Director Hawkins said. I strongly think that foot pursuit should be a significant priority of written directives into this department. I'm glad to hear uh, Ms. Kaywood report that a lot of what it is is sort of formalizing what are already tactics that are present in what um, the excellent FTFO unit is doing. And so I'd like to see uh, a foot pursuit policy before this commission. You know, it would be great to see it this year or as soon as possible this year um, once, once that can be finalized. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, uh, Vice President. Uh, Carter Overstone, I'm just going to echo the, uh, the sentiments and the, the 
you know, of, of all the work that you all have done, I know it's not fun to sit back there and document commas and document, you know, feedback on things that seem right. But uh, without structure, there really is uh, chaos usually, right? And, and knowing that the work that, that is happening here is a collaborative effort, um, it just makes it so much easier to enter those spaces knowing that there are folks that are carrying their end of the bargain um, as we're raising issues. And I think together we're going to get to that place where we have you know, transform these DGOs to provide clarity and direction because ultimately um, it's those officers that are in the field that are really using this. This is their Bible, right? This is how they do their work. And it really needs to be uh, underscored how important this effort is. So I really commend you. I don't know what we can do to support you more. Um, as far as obviously staffing is a challenge everywhere, but I really want to encourage uh, the department to keep investing and expanding this effort because as we move forward, uh, we know that we will continue to require this heavy lift, right? There's still a lot of stuff that needs to be uh, addressed. Um, and I think that the fact that there is such uh, congenial uh, relationship building happening, I think it's going to make the next couple of years a lot easier. Uh, so I thank you from the deepest part of my heart. May I be heard? I just wanted to add uh, something quickly. I too appreciate the clear Sparks reports that the department prepared. Um, there's one DGO that's um, been was omitted from the update on languishing DGOs, and that is DPA's probation and parole policy. And we, we understand it, we're on a, in a holding pattern because we're dealing with traffic first. But um, I don't want that to drop off the department and the commission's radar. Thank you. Just one last question for me for the department. Um, a few months ago, we heard a presentation about uh, a kind of structural reorganization that involved WDU. I, I'm, I'm gonna, I confess I don't remember all of the, the prongs of it, but WDU I think was moving under uh, some was moving in the org chart somewhere was shifting, and I was just wanted to ask if that had happened yet or if that is still underway. Yeah, I'll speak to that. Thank you, uh, Vice President. It has not happened yet, and it was it, the plan is to move it under the the chief of staff wing of the department. We have not made those hires yet. And uh, in all actuality, Commissioner Yanez in our community policing um, presentation to the commission raised some issues that um, really made me think harder. I mean, I was thinking this anyway, but part of that process was going to be to move the com a commander to chief of staff and Commissioner Yanez. Did I say it right? Thank you. All right. Brought up. Um, needing to have stability as well in, in, in the community engagement part of our department. And right now that commander is in that position and the only way that we make that move is to move that commander out of that position. So I really took that to heart because I know how important that is as well. And I think there are other ways to get at, uh, still do what we're gonna do, but use a professional staff position. So that's the direction that we're heading. And we still need to hire that person, but that is the direction that we're, we're heading. But I, I do wanna thank you for Putting that back on uh, the forefront in terms of we, we can't abandon everything we've invested in community engagement. We didn't plan on ab abandoning it, but um, the commander that's in that position, Commander Ng, is doing a fabulous job and has some momentum, and we need some stability in this department. So uh, that's where we are with it.
Thanks, Chief. And, and understanding that it's can't predict when hiring will, will be finalized, but do you, do you have any sense for how long it will take to finalize the structural changes or organizational changes? If we, we've, we've made it, uh, we posted it outside the department. If we make a move inside the department, it's a lot quicker. And we really want to make these moves. Uh, you know, the, the department's economic forecast is not the greatest. And sometimes when that happens, those hiring authorities get frozen and we really need to move on it quickly you know, while we can. So we don't have anybody in the pipeline right now, but um, there's a possibility that that position can be filled internally as well. And, and if we go in that direction, it'll be a lot quicker. Great, thank you. Thanks so much to DPA and the department for the presentation. Sergeant, can we go to public comment? For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item six, please approach the podium or press star three. Vice President Carter, we're stone. There is no public comment. Great. Next item, please. Line item seven, discussion on military equipment at the request of the commission. Discussion. Good evening, commissioners. How are you? This is the first time I've been in this building. I think the meetings I've done with you have been virtual, so this is the first time I'm at the podium. I'm Aja Steves. I work with legislative compliance and also special projects for SFPD, and I am presenting on SFPD's compliance with AB 41, uh, which also is known as military equipment policy. Uh, so we'll be discussing that. Next slide, please. Okay, so California Assembly Bill 481 is captured in Government Code Sections 770 and 775. It requires law enforcement agencies in California to obtain approval from the applicable governing body of a law enforcement use of equipment policy as specified by ordinance. Now in San Francisco, we have a district attorney and we have a sheriff's office. So our city and county, the governing body is considered the Board of Supervisors. So AB 481 requires the law enforcement agency to put in their use policy um, how they use all of the equipment that is defined by AB 41. So AB 41 defines the equipment itself as military equipment. It requires these agencies to, again, put it in the use policy, tell the, tell the public, the members of the public, how that equipment is used. And then there's other things we have to report, the fiscal information, the training requirements, the governing statutes, all of that has to be located in the use policy. And then you have to go to a public process, receive public comment, um, and the governing body gets to determine whether you can continue the use of that equipment. Our ordinance was signed by the mayor December 22nd, and its effective date was January 22nd, uh, 2023, so it's been active for about seven business days. And it also mandates an annual review by police commission and board of supervisors. It also set a time clock for when the use policy had to be submitted to the governing body and how long the governing body had to approve the use policy itself so that the agency could continue use of the equipment that it had in its possession. So again, with the mandated of the annual uh, review, the annual review according to the use policy, we will be coming to the police commission to discuss the annual 
report. Once it passes through police commission, it goes to the board of supervisors and the board of supervisors gets to determine whether the department was compliant with AB 481. And they also can, they decide, the board of supervisors decides whether we can continue using the equipment that's listed in the use policy or whether they want to rescind our ability to use. Next slide, please. So AB 41, again, went through a very public process uh, between the date of submission, which was in May 2022, and the final approval in December 2022, there were about 11 public meetings and three were a full board. Uh, the department captured over 43 policy recommendations through the public hearing process. So with this um, public hearing process with the governing body, the constituents were able to contact their district supervisor, they could express their concerns, and the district supervisor could come to the department and discuss their concerns with us. So in between the public uh, hearings that we had, we also met separately with with uh, Supervisor Chan, Mendelman, and Peskin, and worked out several policy recommendations that they had, and we captured that in that recommendation grid. We put the recommendation grid on our public website, and it's also available on the Board of Supervisors website. Um, and just for current status update, the Board of Supervisors, while they did approve it, and it is in effect, they have duplicated the file and sent it back to rules. So rules committee has an opportunity to rehear um, the proposal, and over this calendar year, they could potentially um, change our uses or revise it in any way or keep it as is. But it has been sent back to rules, and it's up to the rules president, I guess the president of the Board of Supervisors, to calendar it. It has not been calendared yet. So as it stands, we have an effective ordinance. So AB 41 and our use policy required SFPD, again, like I said, to publicly report how the AB 41 defined equipment is used. All the equipment uh, was acquired before January 2022. So again, this round was simply to allow SFPD to continue its use of its current inventory. We were not requesting any new funding or acquisition of any new equipment. It was everything that we had in our possession prior to January 2022. There were uh, a couple substantive changes. The authorized use of the long-range acoustic device, which we call LRAD, uh, was changed. So LRADs have a capability to produce a high power sound wave, which can cause disorientation. So through this process, that capability, we are no longer allowed to use it in that way. It is used as a PA system during specific circumstances. So that the LRAD use was changed, and also there was an express prohibition on using um, lethal force option with our robots. So the ordinance's adoption really only impacted the tactical unit um, unit orders. So we'll be updating them to capture these substantive changes. And also just to update them, uh, we also do have to redact some portions and make sure that they're publicly posted. So we are working on some updates on tactical unit orders. Next slide. Yeah. AB 41 defined about 15 different categories of equipment. Um, in the legislation and in government code 770 through 775, our department met about nine of those categories. So these are the nine categories that met the inventory that we, we actually had. So we have remotely piloted powered ground vehicles, otherwise known as our robots. We have armored personnel carriers, which is our Bearcat. Breaching or entry apparatus can be attached to the Bearcat. Command vans, which you see in Union Square, those are considered under AB 481. 
breaching apparatuses that are explosive in nature, flashbang grenades, pepper balls, uh, specialized firearms less than 50 caliber with exception of standard issued service weapons, and projectile launch platforms and their associated munitions. So this is our ERIWs, our beanbags, our rubber bullets. Those are also considered under AB 41. It'll hit. The sound. We're going to show a short When people see the headlines and they think about killer robots, I think they're picturing Terminator or something from a dystopian sci-fi film. But really what the police department's talking about here are bomb disposal robots. And what SFPD wants to do is basically put an explosive on those bomb defusal devices and send them toward people and potentially explode the device. They would only use this in a case where the person is an active shooter or some other threat to officers or the public and the department has no other way to resolve the situation. Back in 2016, the Dallas Police Department used a bomb disposal robot to kill an active shooter suspect who had just shot and killed five Dallas police officers. So this proposal has been in the works for months now. Then last week, the Board of Supervisors took an 8-3 vote to approve it finally, with three members in dissent, Board President Shimon Walton, Supervisor Dean Preston, and Supervisor Hillary Ronan. So the main argument against this proposal, this policy, is that it would just make killing easier for the San Francisco Police Department, and that this is a, a symptom of the Board of Supervisors giving SFPD too many tools in the first place. San Francisco is not a war zone. So if police shouldn't be trusted with tasers, they sure as hell should not be entrusted with killer robots. Proponents say the police department should be able to use all the tools that it has, that it doesn't make sense to take away this ability from the police department when it could save lives in the future. In an extreme circumstance when many lives are in danger. And I'm sorry, but have you seen what's happening in this country? What the San Francisco Police Department has said so far is that it's never faced a situation where it's had to use deadly force with these robots and that it hopes it never has to in the future. But the idea is that it wants to have this tool in its toolbox so that it can use it if it has to. show you what we actually have in our inventory, the types of robots that we do have, uh, that Tactical has uh, access to, and they're used currently for, and in the use force, it's been, excuse me, in the use policy, it has been um, codified to use as training simulations, critical incidents, suspicious device assessments, to get visuals on barricaded subjects, or to gain situational awareness when clearing buildings. Uh, there was some discussion that came up during the process, during the hearings, where there was concern about AI capabilities. These do not have AI capabilities. Um, they are remote controlled. 
There was some concern about the hackability, essentially, of these robots. Now they don't have any Wi-Fi or any local area network passwords. There's no way to hack it. Your Roomba at home can be hacked before these can be hacked because they're attached to a client ID and to your Wi-Fi, uh, as your I think your Ring camera can as well. But these are remote controlled, so they're, they do not have those abilities. And I know that those questions came up, so we just want to make it clear that that's, they don't have any of those capabilities. Um, the discussion through the rules hearing process was really around use of force, um, not necessarily focused on the lethal force, as one of the legislators uh, was interested in kind of taking away the ability to use robots to deploy chemical agents. When we describe what the use of force was, and this body is more familiar with the terms and the, and the force options than maybe our governing body is. Um, so the conversation really was starting from scratch to explain 501 and use uh, of force options, and when we were able to explain to the legislators that a use of force and a force option to deploy chemical agents was a use of force, they didn't want to prohibit it. So that they kept in the policy, that ability, uh, but did want to make an express prohibition for, for lethal force. So that's where we are right now. Um, we do plan if we are going to go back, and, and again, during that process, our proposal using lethal force at all was in very, very limited circumstances. Obviously, we would adhere to all current DGOs, but we had added the extra layer of um, an a chief or assistant chief of operations approval before using this particular tool in that force option. So that was our initial proposal. It, again, got all the way up to full board, was approved, and then additional discussions happened. Um, so we are where we are, and, and right now we do still have the ability for use of force for chemical agents, uh, just the express prohibition for lethal force. Next slide. So here are some frequently asked questions that we've received um, actually since the approval and during the process. We just wanted to cover them just in case you still have these questions today. Are there plans to expand the current inventory? So this is seven business days old. Essentially, it's been effective for seven business days. Um, but right now, we're working on just making sure that this policy, that we get our tactical unit orders up to date, and that we post those to comply with AB 481 and the ordinance that's been approved. Um, and just so you know, any and all equipment that is covered by AB 41, that is defined by AB 41, would still have to go through this process. So if we were interested in purchasing a new piece of equipment that fell under this category, we would have to create a use policy, submit it to the board, have it calendared for rules, and go through that same process, have it approved by ordinance before we could even procure. So that is the process for if we were to expand. But right now, there are no current plans to expand. Uh, are there plans to replace current inventory? We have plans to maintain current in inventory. So we, have, we will have to purchase, um, I'm sure, munitions for our bean bags and our rubber bullets. Uh, we will still have to maintain our command vans. Everything that's in the inventory, we still will maintain. How does the department determine what equipment is considered standard issue service weapon? Standard-issued service weapons are considered basic equipment that's supplied to the majority of the department and is used during a standard shift. So the specialized units may have certain equipment that isn't considered basic because they're a specialized unit and it's just for their unit. But anything that's really the majority of the department uses during their shift is considered standardized equipment. Um, what is the current cost, including personnel, for maintenance of the existing AB481 equipment. This is actually in the use policy, if you look at it. Um, each 
each category, we have to say how much it costs to maintain each piece of equipment, how much each cost uh, when we first purchased it. And so when you add that up, it comes to about $111,000 a year to maintain the equipment itself. Uh, we don't currently capture a cost of uh, personnel to maintain, um, but if you're asking if there's a question about the personnel in TAC and in special ops, we could probably get that back to this body. Um, TAC and special ops typically will maintain their own equipment during their shift, and there's no, they don't code out into a different um, HRMS code while they're maintaining their equipment. So if we send something out, we have a PO, we can track the cost of it. So again, it's about $111,000 a year to maintain all of the equipment captured in the use policy. What's the department, oh, still there. What's the department's current position on using unmanned remotely piloted ground vehicles for lethal force? So we showed you the video just to give you some, so we can all get up to speed. After seeing what happened in Dallas, um, I think, and when any department has an opportunity to use a tool versus an officer to stop a prolonged attack, something where there are casualties happening and people are still being attacked, a department will, would prefer to send a tool. We don't want to send our officers into something that is active and going. And again, we're talking about prolonged attack. Since we've had the robots since 2010, we haven't seen anything like, I can't give you real examples that happened in San Francisco. That's why we're looking at this one that happened in the nation, which was Dallas, right? So we have this one example to point to where it was effective and it did stop the attack. And when you're looking at these remotely uh, piloted vehicles, they're actually probably more precise than any of our other force options in that we won't accidentally get a bystander, we might not hit another vehicle, this will go directly to whoever the gunman is in this prolonged attack. So I think we are still interested in resubmitting our proposal, but right now we have an approved ordinance that has a, a use of force option, and in all of the times that we've had it, we've never needed to use it in the way in which uh, we, were, we proposed through the process. But again, if we have the option, a tool, versus a, an officer, we'd prefer a tool uh, to send in a prolonged attack situation. And then there's one last question. Uh, how long has the department owned AB41 equipment? So the some of the equipment was purchased in 1991, and that's some of our command vans. And uh, the last piece of equipment I think we purchased in 2021. So everything captured in our policies between 1991 and 2021. Um, so we have some pretty aged equipment, which we'll, we'll like to maintain now that we have the approval to continue the use, um, and that's where we're at. So we also didn't put it in the slide, but now that this is effective, we're planning on joining some of the captains in their monthly meetings and talking to community members about this ordinance that is still in effect and take their comments, take their questions, and hopefully give them some education on how this impacts their district. And, and really nothing has changed in the way we've used this equipment. The thing that has changed mostly is just public awareness. These were tools that maybe didn't, we weren't have, we didn't have them posted on our website. We didn't have them posted on the legislator's website, but now they are. So really that's the biggest change with AB 481 compliance is the awareness. And after that, I'd like to take any questions you have. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Thank you, Ms. Steves, for that presentation. Um, just a couple of questions. And um, so as I understand that you said, since the file was duplicated, 
the rules committee has not scheduled any further hearings. Have you been apprised that they, they intend to in the future, or is there no information that you have about future hearings from rules? The last I heard is the committees were just assigned, and I haven't heard any action after that. Okay. Um, most of the rest of my questions are about the unmanned, remotely piloted, powered ground vehicles. We'll call them robots, since that's just easier to say. Um, as I understand from looking at this report, there are six kinds of robots the department has. The remote 5FA, the remote F6A, the remote RONS, the Quenetic Talon, the Quenetic Dragon Runner, and the iRobot First Look. Under the department's original proposal to authorize lethal force in extraordinary circumstances, which of these uh, were the ones that would, would be authorized as lethal, as lethal force options? We hadn't actually appointed a particular um, robot for that use. It was just sort of starting the process to make sure that we could confirm the use, right? Um, but when you're looking at the presentation, I can tell you, and I'm, it's already closed, um, but it would probably be the, the Remote Tech 5-6-A or the Quinitech Talon or the Quinitech Dragon Runner. Okay. And while the policy contains an express prohibition on them being used as lethal force options, as I understand it, they're still permitted as intermediate force options. Correct. Is that correct? So which of the, of the six robots uh, are, are permitted intermediate force options? The, these are the ones that could potentially deploy a chemical agent. So that's what we're talking about. And I believe that we'll have to get back to you on the details, but I believe it's either the five, excuse me, the F6A um, or the F5A. Really, I think any of them that could actually move it close to the, to the area. Okay. Um, but I can check with TAC and, and double and get back to you. And then is it, is there one unit of each of, the, oh no, I sorry, I see, I see there are numbers now. There are 17 in total. Okay, that answers that question. Um, I know obviously, uh, fortunately, we've never had the need, like you said, to deploy robots in a lethal force option. Do you happen to know how often they're deployed as an intermediate force option to deliver the chemical agent? That's a great question. So we don't have that number now, but in the annual report, it's required to report out all of the deployments and what the results of the deployments were. So you'll be getting that information in the annual report. And we're also creating a tracking system internally so we can track all the deployments, and that is required in the use policy to be sent up to the assistant chief of operations for tracking as well. So right now, I do not have that information, but we will in the annual report. The annual report that will only indicate any uses as of this calendar year, right? Uh, as from date of adoption, so. From date of adoption, so right. from, from December, okay. Mm -hmm. Would it be possible to, and I appreciate that you don't have this information in front of you, to, to see, I'm just trying to get a sense of how often these have been used historically. Uh, would it be possible to ask TAC if they could, you know, I, I imagine if they were already an intermediate use of force, it would have been reportable, so that should be obtainable information to see how often, both per year and maybe over a five-year period, they're used, because I, I think there's a big difference if, these are being used as intermediate force options once a year, once every two years, or 10. Like, any number would have different implications for the way I think we, we consider this policy. So if we could check with that. Absolutely. Great. Um, those are all my questions. Thank you. Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President uh, Carter Overstone. Um, just a couple of quick follow-up questions. I know that you explained how uh, the maintenance is taking place during, uh, you know, it was standard kind of, I guess, on-duty officers, you know, duties, right? Um, 
it, it, and you said there may be a way to capture how much time is being spent in that if they were to document it separately? Um, I think for clarification, there is no separate code to track officers maintaining their own equipment. Got it. So that's during their normal work shift is the expectation to keep your your weapons clean and to keep everything working. The so there's not issues. a separate way to track that yeah. because that's just during their normal hours. And for these other, the robots and these other kind of tactical weapons that are not necessarily standard issue equipment, is there a unit that manages the maintenance of Our tactical of those? unit, yes, our special ops. So it's those special ops officers that are in each unit that are responsible for the maintenance. Right. It is, are any of those, and this may be a question for the chief to consider, are any of these um, operations or maintenance uh, kind of requirements that can be, uh, that can be done by a non-sworn officer? I, I, I don't know for sure, but what I do know is that they, they are able to maintain these, these pieces of equipment and if they have to you know, send them out for something you know, specialized, uh, many of these are, are aged, so we are constantly in the process of making sure that we keep them maintained so we don't have to replace them. But I do believe that they are able to send out you know, certain pieces of equipment if they have to, but they do maintain them and they've been trained to maintain them. Basic maintenance. I mean. Right. I, I just, you know, would encourage us to consider, um, you know, get, con given the, the limited staffing that we have, that if there are some of these operations that could be shifted into non-source staff, we are going to save, you know, time for folks out on the field, obviously. So that would be one thing just I'd recommend that we look at moving forward. Um, another question that I had, I, you there is an expectation to document, you know, submachine guns, anything that is what, less than 50 caliber is not because that would be a standard issue uh, weapon. But I understand that there are, and you explained that specialized units um, have different type of arsenal, right? And is that then when they're in this unit considered the standard issue weapon for that unit? And are those then carved out and not reported in this? So those are the ones that are reported out on this. So the patrol weapons, the patrol rifles are not included in this as those are the ones that are considered standard, standard issued. The ones that are handled by TAC and special ops are captured in this particular policy. Got it, thank you. Um, and moving forward, I know that you know, the, the, the majority of the responsibility will um, kind of sit in the Board of Supervisors for authorizing any extension, expansion of the arsenal or any modification of that arsenal. Um, is there a plan to, if we get to that point, Chief, uh, have a more uh, kind of robust conversation in this space before we propose any modifications to the standard issue or to these other weapons that we have? Um, so that we are being as you know open and transparent about these proposals not that this doesn't have you know not that the board of supervisors is going to isn't going to be diligent about their uh, process but it is something that obviously this commission is very interested in and we field the questions we field the feedback um so i would uh expect that we do have some type of process here. Uh, I know that that isn't necessarily an expectation of that 
um, of the AB law, but um, I we think we carved that that it into our use policy. Um, while it wasn't required by AB 4081, we did put it into our use policy that there be public hearings at the police commission okay, prior to submission of the annual report to the board. So it's actually prior to completion of the annual board, gotcha. uh, annual report. So we'll put a draft in front of this body to discuss all of the criteria that's required through the annual report, which again is how many times was it deployed? Why was it deployed? Um, uh, what was the result of the incident? There's specific questions. How? What was the? Um, how much did it cost to maintain? Uh, so there's several several questions that are required in the annual report, and so we put a carve in in this particular use policy to before we finalize the report to come have at least one public hearing. So at least one. Um, that means that this body can request more than one. Uh, that we have open discussions, invite the public to ask those questions, um, and then maybe even capture whatever concerns this body has, and that has to happen before we submit the annual report to the Board of Supervisors. Great. Well, can, I, can I just add, I'm sorry I didn't request to speak, but one thing too, I just want the Commission to know uh, that we're very, very thoughtful about not conflicting with DGOs. I mean, we held a position in the Department, and I believe the Commission at the time, that the commission is the body that governs our policies, and when ordinances come, we understand that the board has a right to do that. But we're very thoughtful about not circumventing or conflicting with the DGO. Oftentimes, we will refer to the DGO in terms of the, the, the policy on some of these issues, and that retains the commission's ability to actually do what it does. So we're very thoughtful about that, and there, there are you know, some language that we have to address that may not be in the DGO, but we're very thoughtful about not circumventing the DGO process. Great. Thank you, Chief, and thank you, Ms. Deez. Uh, this I know this is new. This is another assignment on your big plate, so I think you're doing a wonderful job, and you just kind of up the ante for presentations with that video, by the oh, way. Thank you. Commissioner Byrne. Uh, thank you, Vice President Carter-Overstone. Uh, does the San Francisco Police Department have any machine guns? Machine guns? Yeah, automatic weapons. So we have... Um, specifically put in this policy the types of specialized firearms we have. Um, so maybe not using that terminology. Well, uh, you know, we have automatic we have, rifles that you'd see in the military So we have context. here listed submachine guns. We have semi-auto rifles. No, and no, we have, but automatic ones. ones and we have just... full auto-tech short barrel rifles, machine guns. Okay. Um, my next question, uh, what is a breaching apparatus's that are explosive in nature. What exactly is that? I can tell you. It's in the policy. I'm just going to find it here. Sorry. Uh, so we have them listed in the use policy. We have an energetic breaching tool, a kinetic breaching tool, a ballistic breaching round, and a pan disruptor. And again, it's described in, in the use policy what they are um, and, and why they're used. So, sorry. So gen a generic term that you hear in policing is flashbangs. You're going to breach right. the door. The, the, they're underneath. That's the a different bang. Grenades category. are underneath. Well, I mean, so it, that's it's, it's used generically, but there are different types of breaching devices. But anything with an explosive that is used to breach a door, it, I mean, we know where they are, but the public mm -hmm. really re refers to those as flash. They're not hand grenades. No. Okay. So there's no like, where, okay. So they're not designed to splatter and. 
Correct. Correct. They're, they're okay. not shrapnel that is designed to, you right. know, do harm to people's bodies. They're designed to breach. And they also do breach um, suspicious packages as well. So it's not for doors. It's just anything that needs to be opened. Right. So we do have um, some breaching apparatuses that are used to open up packages. Right. Um, how many armored personnel carriers does the San Francisco police have? We only listed one. That's our, our Bearcat. And why would the San Francisco Police Department need an armored personnel carrier? Yeah, I'll, I'll take Mi that. Mine resistant, too, apparently. I'll take that. I mean, basically, this is a armored vehicle on a truck platform. And so the reason for that, if there's a situation with um, an active attacker, particularly a shooter, and officers have to approach that, particular location, that vehicle is armored, so they can do that safely. Right. right. I, I understand the need for an armored one, but the idea that it's mine-resistant, I mean, I've never heard of the roads of San Francisco being mined. That yeah. They would Actually, need, uh, yeah. Yeah, go, go ahead. So, I, so before, it's before. under the category that was presented by AB 41, and that's sort of the challenge, right, is that AB 41, the legislators that created that, they're the ones that determined what the equipment was. And it doesn't nicely or neatly align with law enforcement's understanding of what military equipment is. So the way it's listed is it's mine resistant or it's an armored personnel carrier. So hopefully so it's one, under that category. Hopefully we don't we don't have uh, mine resistant. Uh, I mean, I understand the need in, in an active shooter that you'd want something that yeah, that uh, bullets will come off of, but the idea of paying for something, the streets of San Francisco are mine, just it's an or. It's line. an or category. So it's mine resistant okay, but or armor. Does our one ha mine resistant? Is our armor personal? I, I don't believe it's mine resistant. It's armored. I don't believe it's mine. Oh, mine resistant means something different. I mean, you Be have an armored undercarriage and all that. I don't believe that that, and I'll verify that, but um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it doesn't. You understand my point is yes. that. that the San Francisco Police Department is not a military, and any any perception to the public um, that they they are a military strikes a different connotation, because the San Francisco Police Department is supposed to be part of the people of San Francisco, not an occupation force, and that sort of um, that sort of use of something like that has visions of of being a, a military going into a city. And, and I certainly, and I doubt that I'd have much dissent on this, um, I think that most people would, would, would agree with me that we need to be open to the public because we're part of the public. We're not, uh, we have nothing to do with, uh, and that's why it's a sensitive issue. I mean, we can talk about robots all we want, but um, the idea is that we don't want to militarize the San Francisco police force any more than it already is because I think that's important for community participation, community involvement. I understand, and, and we will verify that, but I'm quite sure that these are, as we described, yeah. and not meant for mines in a battlefield type of situation. Yeah. Because, because if there are, you know, I would encourage the Board of Supervisors to donate it to the military in the Ukraine, to be quite honest. It could be much more value there than here. Thank you. All right, seeing no more names in the queue, thank you so much, Ms. Steves. Um, Sergeant, can we go to public comment? 
For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item seven, please approach the podium or press star three. Hello, I, I, I do want to just comment um, and say I agree with Commissioner Burns. Just sitting here, I was a little afraid of this whole process or the whole sound of it sounds very scary and it does sound very military. And I, I for one, don't know where the public has heard of this. This is the first I've heard of this. I text a couple of my siblings and I've never heard of AB 841. And so if there's going to be public comment, I would wonder how it would be publicized so that more people would be able to hear this and have a better understanding of what the intention of this AB 841 is. Thank you. So again, uh, just piggybacking off of her, you know, I was thinking about, you know, the supervisors saying that this is not a war zone, and it isn't a war zone. And you, uh, if just like he said, if they can't be trusted with tasers, how are they going to be trusted with a machine like this? Um, and I was saying the, and it's still operated by a human. And. You, your presentation said that it killed five police officers. What about the community? I thought that presentation should have had more than just five police officers. You know, it's just almost like they're just protecting the police. Um, and I thought, if, what if this was in a bank? I could see if it was a bank being robbed, and, and you know, and, they, and, the, and the shooter is in there killing everybody, because he can still kill everybody. You bring that taser in there, he just might as well just kill himself and everybody in the bank. So how is that going to hold? Um, and if they was holding hostages. So what about that? And then I think this thing is to also, it's going to be used on people of color. It's already happening. It's going to be used on people of color. I'm a person of color. Um, and if this is automatic gun, autom you know, well, that's not going to, it's going to be an automatic gun. But if the person had an automatic gun, how are you going to stop them? If the active shooter, if mental health, are you going to shoot a mental health person? What about that? What do we do about that? Thank you. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Yeah, this is Gloria Berry from District 10. Um, I think that the president should have continued this item. It's too soon. It's too soon. The videos we've seen recently. Sorry, Commissioner Walker, I'm bothering you, but um, I just think that we don't want to hear about this crap right now, about no killer robots and military equipment. Do, do we not know there was a vigil today? I mean, I couldn't even believe the chief was even there. He should be working on reforms immediately. That should be the priority of this commission. And you can always vote to redo your agenda for the night or cancel or something, but this is too soon. It's triggering. It's painful that you're discussing which ways to kill us, how maybe an officer could be protected by having the robot kill us instead of the officer, bringing in military equipment. Come on now, have 
some sensitivity to people. You know, I, I really feel like black people are still three-fifths of a human at this point. We are human beings, and you're discussing how to kill us? What kind of machine guns do you have? I mean, try to try to think about the black mothers. You got one sitting right in front of you. Think about her. Let's not talk about this stuff right now. I don't even know what's on the rest of your agenda, but work on reform, reform, reform. Get police trained so that we don't have a big incident in San Francisco because of rookie officers that are scared to do their job. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. My name is Susan Buckman, and I live in District 6. Let me read from the text of AB 41. The legislature finds and declares all of the following. A, the acquisition of military equipment and its deployment in our communities adversely affects, I'm sorry, adversely impacts the public safety and welfare, including increased risk of civilian death, significant risk to civil rights, civil liberties, and physical and psychological well-being, and incurment of significant financial costs. Military equipment is more frequently deployed in low-income black and brown communities, meaning the risk and impact of police militarization are experienced most acutely in marginalized communities. The public has a right to know about any funding, acquisition, or use of military equipment by state or local government officials, as well as the right to participate in any government agency's decision to fund, acquire, or use such equipment. Decisions regarding whether or how military equipment is funded, acquired, or used should give strong consideration to the public's welfare, safety, civil rights, and civil liberties, and should be based on meaningful public input. AB 481 was authored by David Chu, and he likely intended it to reduce the amount of military equipment and weapons in the hands of police departments. If police departments were forced to disclose to city governments how much they had hidden away, she likely hoped that sanity would prevail and that those governments would force those police departments to give up most, if not all, of the weaponry. She didn't account for, for human nature, so of course it backfired badly. City governments, like San Francisco's Board of Supervisors, have chosen to endorse the further militarization of our police force. They've chosen to make themselves and you and the entire city complicit and police violence, both actual and hypothetical. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Caller, you have two minutes. Hi, good evening. Yes, hi, good evening. My name is Nara Daniels. I am a resident of District 10. My comment is not per se to the equipment, but the officers using the equipment and why do I say that? In reference to an article in Mission Local where your captain of Mission Station was quoted referring to George Floyd's death as a thing, and he goes on to say that the requirement of reporting use of force is extra paperwork that is unnecessary because these things don't really occur. It's the mindset and the culture of the officers within this department, the lack of sensitivity, cultural competency, and the common sense to want to do better, the basics. So again, I ask, how is it that you, Chief Scott, allow an officer with these biases to be in a leadership position in a predominantly brown community? 
he plainly stated he does not see a need to focus his station on raising their community policing standards or skills. But yet we should be trusting that they will do the right thing when given more tactical equipment. I don't believe so. And I, I hate the rest of my time. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Uh, yes, this is Yolanda uh, Williams calling. And uh, again, I am concerned that we are not ready to start talking about the usage of these robots and all of these other mechanisms at this point in time. We need to focus on what we're supposed to be focusing on, which is reform, training our officers so that they do know how to communicate better with members of the public. And um, at this point in time, I'm also concerned about the comment made by the captain of Mission Police Station. That is not the mindset of someone who is supposed to be reform-minded and in a leadership position. I suggest that you look at that Mission local article and that he be dealt with about this. Otherwise, he should not be having any public contact if that's his true feelings about what happened to George Floyd, that he's not really sure about it. So I yield the rest of my time. Vice President Carter, we're that as the end of public comment. Thank you, Sergeant. Next item, please. Uh, one quick announcement before we move forward. The commission is going to remove line item 11, 12, 13, and 14 from the agenda as there is no closed session tonight. I'm sorry, Sergeant. Before we call the next item, Chief just wanted to have one last word on the current uh, on the current item. Thank you, Vice uh, President Carter-Overstone. I just wanted to answer uh, and Commissioner Burns' question. No, they are not mine-resistant vehicles. We just ver I just verified. I mean, I believe that to be the case, but I just verified. Yeah. You you understand. Yes, Yeah, my, my point, it just, yeah. I do. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I mean, I understand to protect the officers if it's an active shooter situation. But, we, yeah, we don't need mine-resistance in San Francisco. Yeah. Thank you. They are not. Thank you for Thank that. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Sergeant. Could, could we call item number eight, please? Line item eight, discussion and possible action to approve revised Department General Order 5.07, rights of onlookers, for the department to use in meeting and conferring with the affected bargaining units as required by law. Discussion and possible action. All right. <clears throat> Good evening, Chief Scott, Chief of Staff Hawkins, Vice President Carter Oberstone, and members of the Police Commission. My name is Tom Harvey, and I'm the captain of the SFPD Academy. I'm here tonight to introduce to you 5.07 in draft form, the rights of onlookers last issued in 1995. A few months back, Acting Assistant Chief Flaherty requested the training division work on providing guidance to members regarding rights of onlookers. After reviewing the new version of 3.01, and seeing this topic came with special circumstances regarding notifying DPA, I reached out to Director Kaywood. Director Kaywood and Attorney Jermaine Jones were in the academy one day working on the disengagement policy, and I was able to connect with them regarding this specific um, general order. And essentially, we got together in person, we talked about common goals, and came up essentially more or less with what you see before you here tonight. So what I'd like to do is I don't want to go over this 
whole thing section by section, but I just want to talk about the main differences and uh, key additions is what I'll call them. So number one, the purpose, uh, the purpose of the policy uh, to protect the rights and safety of onlookers, detained or arrested persons, and the safety of department members while maintaining the integrity of a crime scene, restricted area, and or investigation. So uh, without reading to you the policy, I'll just highlight that basically the department recognizes that onlookers have a First Amendment right to observe, photograph, and record members during the performance of their duties, so long as it doesn't delve into the criminal side of things. Additionally, we acknowledge that members of the public have a Fourth Amendment right to maintain and retain a recording which they made unless um, th uh, through other lawful processes like a search warrant or otherwise. So I'm gonna carry on. So there's a few exceptions to this and it's listed on the top of page two. Again, I'm not gonna go through them. Just know that it references the criminal activity arena and or compromising a criminal investigation. The next section, guidance during vehicle stops. Uh, during a concurrence meeting, there was a suggestion made by the department, again, to provide members with some guidance on this topic. And so we tried our best to kind of do this uh, in a concise way. Um, again, people, passengers of a car can record peace officers so long as their actions do not pose a safety risk to the officer. Uh, moving on, another, and the last key section is about restricted areas. This is a new section that wasn't contemplated in the current uh, 1995 version. Essentially what it says in short is onlookers are not permitted in designated crime scenes. That's bounded by crime scene tape. Secondly, onlookers are not permitted to be in restricted areas. This is important here, designated by signage of department facilities, station, lot, station parking lots or areas. And what this is talking about are sensitive areas uh, of police stations. Um, we had, uh, I think it was back in 2021, there was a First Amendment auditor issue at a police station um, within the department and uh, this guidance is supposed to help members kind of navigate those uh, unusual circumstances where if there's a sign and you inform the person that their presence is unlawful because they're in a sensitive area, uh, that the member could then take action if it was deemed appropriate. Uh, and that really, I think, is in a nutshell the key differences, um, unless there's any questions. Thank you, Captain Harvey, uh, for the presentation. Just two questions for me. So on page two, um, section B, the guidance during vehicle stop section, um, the first sentence says members have, the, members have the authority during traffic stops to control the movements of all vehicle occupants for safety purposes. And I just wanted to, to ask, is that, is that right? Is that a correct statement? Of the law, I, I mean, because that sounds a little bit. I mean, if the car stop, you're detained, you're not free to leave. That much is clear. But control the movements to me sounded more like custodial arrest, and I'm sure that there was 
discussion around the precise language, so just wanted to ask about that. Sure, no problem. So it wasn't meant to state or imply that literally controlling the body parts or body movements of passengers within a car. Rather, it was in reference to uh, the Supreme Court case, Pennsylvania versus MIMS, um, where there's like a balance test uh, within that court case. I won't go further into it, but just for reference, that's what it's referring to. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. Um, and then I was just catching this right now. Um, also on page two, section A6, um, makes an internal reference. It says C at the end of it, C 5.0702E. Should that be O2F? Because it's that section is referring to restricted areas and then F defines restricted areas, or do I have that wrong? You are correct. Okay. Um, then if it's all right with you, if we could make, we could just make an amendment. I'll try, I didn't review Robert's rules, so this could get choppy like last time, but if it's all right with you, we can just make an amendment here live in the meeting. Um, great. I have no objection to that. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> okay, um, Commissioner Yanez. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Uh, in section A, uh, the second paragraph, members shall allow the onlooker to remain in proximity to the interaction to overhear and record the encounter. Was there any thought given to actually defining what the proximity limit should be instead of leaving it up to the officers to determine in the heat of the moment? Um, just because, you know, I know that obviously there's, there's a need to contain and control a scene um, and leaving that up to the officer's discretion without defining it may look differently in different scenarios. Yes, Commissioner, um, I understand the concern which you're uh, defining. I think the challenge is, is that it's very much case-by-case -case basis depending on what it is, right? Like, is it a vehicle stop? Is it a pedestrian stop? Is it a, a mass arrest scenario? Like, I think the scenario would dictate the appropriate space, therefore making it hard to define. Would a minimum amount of space be provided just give that much more guidance? Um, I understand that there are scenarios where, yes, you're going to require, you know, I don't know, 100 yards because there's an active scene and it's taped off. But there are situations where, you know, whether there's an encounter and a friend wants to come and just say, you know, five feet is the minimum. Or, I mean, I don't know, that's just a random suggestion, but I, I feel that there's a lot of uh, opportunity to uh, take advantage of the language when it's not as defined as, mm -hmm. as it could be. So that's something to consider. I don't know if we want to consider an amendment or making a recommendation at this point. Um, does this still go to meet and confer? I believe there probably will be some bargainable uh, sections in here. But if I could just speak to your question and the reason, to, uh, I just want to support what Captain Harvey said. It, it really is difficult because you know part of this is in the interest of the onlooker. Um, you know, if we draw you know a, an arbitrary space limitation, 
I, it, it may not be in the best interest of the onlooker who's trying to overhear the conversation and, and, or, or record the conversation. So a general rule of thumb for officers, you know, number one, it depends on the volatility of the situation. And if the person invades the space to the point where they're interfering with the officer's investigation, then that actually is, is against the law, against the Section 148 of the mm -hmm. Penal Code. But I, I just want to have uh, some discretion so we don't draw an imaginary line that actually is, is not good for the onlooker who's trying to record whatever they're trying to record. I know we've been in, in crowd situations where people wanted to record and it was in the middle of um, an arrest situation and it was a problem. And But if you're standing you know, far enough away where you can overhear and take care of whatever you need to take care of, it's really hard to draw that into a policy because it, it's so, every case is different. And a, a routine traffic stop with no volatility, no contention, and the person wants to you know, stand close enough where they can hear, I, I wouldn't see a situation where it would be reasonable for an officer to say, you gotta stand across the street. But you know, a, a contentious situation where there's the possibility or actually be a violent situation, you know, that officer may say, you know, get given enough space to, to keep you safe and keep us safe. So that's what we did want to get locked into because it's almost impossible to predict every situation. And we want to balance this with the rights of the onlooker, which is what this is all about, but allow the officers to be able to do you know, their job safely and what they need to do and keep the person that they're, that they're engaging with safe as well. And, and I understand, I mean, it is a major challenge. Um, I'm just looking at trying to minimize conflict, right? We're gonna have people who, without a defined you know, parameter, uh, may say, what do you mean? You're asking me not to record and I wanna get closer and then we have a contentious scenario. But I understand the challenges of, of crafting policy that will define or that will meet every scenario, right? So um, I'm comfortable moving forward in this direction. The other question though I did have is there's language here that says that the member, I think it's in uh, D, Two, the member may request in a non-coercive manner that the onlooker voluntarily provide the recording, and, and I this is similar to me um, to, to the surveillance policy, right, or the uh, live feed policy. We have a document that we're producing, asking people to either sign, consent to, or not, so that we don't engage in that language or in that back and forth about whether I have the right to request your phone in that video or not, and the manner in which that is that request is made, right? Always uh, depending on the temperament of the person, depending on the situation and the scenario, that interaction can turn volatile, right? Ha was there any thought given to just a little card saying, this is our policy, you can give it to us or you can't, or you don't have to, but here is where you could get a hold of us if you'd like to share that information. Uh, was there any thought uh, given to something along those lines? This is specifically in regards to E2, correct? E2 in the section where it says that the member may request, comma, in a non-coercive manner. That the, that the onlooker voluntary provide the recording. And I think it just leaves, once again, uh, a lot of room for interpretation and a lot of room for potential conflict that we can minimize. It's, it's D2. It's D2. Thank you, D2. 
Yeah, I think if, it, so for instance, to talk this out, if I was the witness and you're the police officer and you ask me like, hey, I know your phone captured the footage, the evidence, and you ask me as the officer, hey, I, can I, uh, would you consent to providing your phone? The member currently would be obligated to provide a, um, a property receipt to that witness. And it's also captured on body-worn camera. So I think all like the voluntary, the voluntary, the voluntary element of that exchange would be documented on the body-worn camera. And if a member is seizing something from a, if a, if a police officer is seizing something from a member of the public, uh, there's a property receipt exchange, right? To, and they're signing for that right. property. So I think there are some current, I'll call them safeguards, uh, that would hopefully address that concern or the idea that it's voluntary in nature. And, and I, don't, I don't think my concern was more the recuperating of their evidence or of their document or of their phone. It's more that engagement that takes place. If I give you a card, I'm not ready to give you my video right now, but I have a card saying, who knows, maybe this is very significant to this case. I may be able to help. It will help improve that relationship between community feeling like I can be proactive about reaching out, not just on the scene. I think it's something worth considering. Um, and that was, those, those were my two points. Um, I, if I can just add, and it's, it, it is, I understand your, your thought process and it is a good idea. And this actually did come up in some of our discussions that I've been in. The dynamic is this, and I've actually been in this situation many times. There are situations where people get um, really, really upset when you hand them a car in a public space, particularly in neighborhoods where they believe that's going to indicate that they're talking to the police or giving evidence. And I, I've seen it, I've witnessed it, and I've experienced it on, on you know this end of that conversation where People have gotten highly upset when I tried to hand them a car. It's like, what are you trying to get me killed? You know, and so I, we didn't want to mandate that for that reason. It is a good idea, and I, I do understand what you're, you're getting at here. And then the other issue is whether just the mere thought of a police officer asking for evidence is, is coercive. And I think that's what, yeah. you know, what Captain Harvey is, is trying to address, that there are safeguards. But mandating, given the card, I would... I would ask not to do that because particularly uh, in, in certain communities where retaliation and you know that it, where people are really afraid to talk to us, they don't want to be seen giving anything to us or, or being given anything. And I totally understand that. So that, that is the balance of this conversation. And I'm, I'm very aware of that dynamic, obviously. Um, but it's the same thing as with the folk. Right. If I'm going to turn over the phone, if I want to cooperate, that gives me an opportunity to cooperate from a distance. And it doesn't have to be mandatory. It could be we could use the non-coercive optional language and just enhance it with documentation that helps that person follow up. I think it, it could be something that we look at that wouldn't necessarily endanger or put anyone at risk and it would improve communication. Thank you. Chief of Staff Hawkins. Two points. One additionally, or one initially, is to respond to Commissioner Yanez's first point. Um, and DPA agrees with Chief Scott and Captain Harvey in terms of not 
uh, being so specific about a distance frame or a kind of space because I think there's too many scenarios to contemplate and we struggle with that in every policy we write. How much do you legislate versus how much do you leave to the officers to kind of act with the rest of the DGO? So just for the record, DPA agrees um, that as is, we should send this uh, forward. And then I just want to take a little bit of a step back in terms of process because we are giving credit to our excellent policy team who greatly deserves it. However, this particular DGO kind of policy recommendation also stems from cases that DPA actually investigated and brought to the disciplinary review board where we discussed it with that body which includes um, uh, AC Flaherty as well as other members of the department. So I think it's important to to see the progress that that body has made and to know that policy recommendations come from a multitude of places. It could be something we see in the news. It can be the great work that's being done by our investigators and legal team, which then percolates up to uh, Janelle working on writing the actual language of the policy. So it's really a team effort. And I think we've done a good job of capturing policy recommendations that come from investigations. That wasn't always happening in real time. So it's a real testament to the disciplinary review board actually working that way, that when cases show a need for policy change, that's getting implemented and happening um, much quicker than it did previously. So I wanted to kind of acknowledge DRB and the investigation side of DPA for helping um, tee up some of the issues that we're talking about. Commissioner Benedicto. Thank you, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Um, I don't have any further comments. I was going to go ahead and make a, a motion. Uh, so I will make a motion that we, that the Commission adopt DGO 5.07 for use in bargaining with the effective bargaining units with the amendment that on page two, uh, number six, the, the reference of 5.07.02E be changed to 5.0202F. And as uh, we've done now for uh, a few DGOs in a row, uh, when it is forwarded by this commission, I would ask that it include instructions that the commission hereby directs the San Francisco Police Department and urges the San Francisco Department of Human Resources to set clear boundaries to the meet and confer process with the affected bargaining units to ensure there are no unreasonable delays on any items within the scope of representation and to meet and confer with the affected bargaining units only on matters related to working conditions subject to collective bargaining under California law and not meet and confer with the affected bargaining units on any part of the general order that constitute management matters not subject to collective bargaining under California law. And as promised, my fellow commissioners, I am working on a resolution, so I don't have to read that every single time. Is there a second? Second. For members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item eight, please approach the podium or press star three. I have a comment. Instead of um, defining proximity, maybe what obstructing means would be helpful to the public. So what does that mean? That's my comment. Thank you. I was thinking about that, you know, about uh, you're asking for people for their for their uh, cameras so that they can 
do that. Just like what Chief Scott said, you know, you handing a card to someone, it's almost like uh, they're snitching. And um, it's just same as like if there was a home surveillance camera. If they were, if something was happening in a residential neighborhood and people have cameras on their houses, and then you go to knock on that door and say, "Can we see your camera? There was a there was a murder happened outside your house. Can you make them do that?" It's the same thing. It's almost the same thing. Some of these people don't want to get involved, and you can't make a homeowner uh, give their camera footage up. And 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 they're worried about people listening. You know, people can read lips too. Lip reading, you know. Uh, and um, I was thinking too. Everyone has a phone. Everyone has a phone. So who are you going to ask? Can we use your phone, or can we see your phone? Everyone has a phone. So, and 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 also these phones zoom in. You can stand far back. They have sophisticated phones. You can stand far back and still uh, catch the footage of whatever's going on. So, I don't think this is is really a good thing, and if people want to give up that information, then let it be up to them. That's just like we're asking for people to come in and, and help us with our unsolved cases. If we're not even getting that, what make you think you're going to get it? I don't know. Good evening, caller. You have two minutes. Hi, good evening. This is Marge Daniels again. And I just wanted to list that there was an incident today in the Tenderloin with officers who assaulted an onlooker and told them that they were violating the law. But without this policy being complete, um, how are we aware, or if there's no proximity, how is that possible without being defined? There was a complaint made, and while this policy is being negotiated, um, is there an idea that officers can just do as they wish? I support the inquiry of proximity being defined at least as a minimum. I do understand the explanation from Chief Scott of the language being vague, but it never plays out in favor of the onlooker. And the uh, badge numbers of the officers today was 2415 and 1834, but again, there was a complaint made. I, he directed my time. Vice President Carter Oberson, that is the end of public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have six yeses. And for members of the public, the um, line item 10 is also being removed from tonight's agenda. Line item nine, discussion and possible action to approve revised department general order 6.04, assaults on police officers, for the department to use in meeting and conferring with the affected bargaining units as required by law. Discussion and possible action. Hello, good evening. My name is uh, Deputy Chief Raj Viswani. Uh, good evening, Vice President Carter Oberstone. Chief of Staff, uh, Sarah Hawkins, sorry, it says Paul Henderson there, <laughs> and Assistant Chief um, Flaherty, and members of the commission and also members of the public that are not only here but also 
listening to us online. Um, I'm going to be introducing Captain Mark M., who worked for me at Investigations under General Crime. He oversaw general work in NIU, which had the main responsibility of investigating assaults on police officers. He'll be going over 6.04, which has, it's only two pages and three main procedural sections. And I'll hand it over to Mark M. Good evening, Vice President Carter Overstone, Commissioners, Assistant Chief uh, Flaherty, and Chief of Staff Hawkins. Uh, I'm Captain Mark Kim, uh, currently assigned to the Risk Management Office. And as uh, DC Viswani stated, my previous assignment was the Acting Captain at General Crimes. So to give you a little history on it, um, the SME, there was a prior SME assigned to this GO but based on staffing changes, I was reassigned as the SME in the latter part of last year. Um, when I got the uh, draft, it was already initially written. Um, we went over the recommendations grid, and a lot of it was already addressed. And I cl worked closely with uh, Ms. Kaywood from DPA, and based on her feedback and input, we were able to come to this uh, current draft that we have uh, before you today. Um, just to go over this, draft the prior draft well the prior our current geo was written in 1994 and it was only half a page so we made this new draft a lot more robust uh, giving a lot more direction responsibilities on what the officers should be doing uh, also more directions for supervisors uh, on what they need to do what their responsibilities are and also on what the investigative steps or units um, need to do in situations where officers are assaulted. So um, I'm not gonna go into great detail, but you know, like I stated, the prior draft, the, our current draft, sorry, our current geo was only half a page. So it's a lot more robust now with a lot more information um, to make it a lot easier for officers, supervisors, and investigations to uh, do their job when we have incidents where officers are assaulted. Um, in closing, I just want to thank Janelle Kaywood for her assistance with this. Uh, she had a lot of input and uh, feedback for me, as well as uh, DC Raj Viswani. Um, he had a lot of information and feedback, so without their assistance, we wouldn't be where we are today with this uh, draft. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation. I, I don't see any of my colleagues in the queue. Oh, just make uh, a motion. Yeah. Oh, then um, yes, Commissioner Benedicto, if you'd like to make a motion. Thank you. Thank you for the presentation. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Deputy Chief and Captain. Um, this DGO seems pretty straightforward, so I'll make a motion that we adopt General Order 6.04 uh, for use with um, the effective bargaining units with instructions that the commission hereby directs the San Francisco Police Department and urges the San Francisco Department of Human Resources to set clear boundaries to the meet and confer process with the affected bargaining units to ensure there are no unreasonable delays on any items within the scope of representation and meet and confer with the affected bargaining units only on matters related to working conditions subject to collective bargaining under California law and not meet and confer with the affected bargaining units on any part of the general order that constitute management matters not subject to collective bargaining under California law. Second. 
Members of the public that would like to make public comment regarding line item nine, please approach the podium or press star three now. And there is no public comment. On the motion, Commissioner Walker, how do you vote? Yes. Commissioner Walker is yes. Commissioner Benedicto? Yes. Commissioner Benedicto is yes. Commissioner Yanez? Yes. Yes. Commissioner Yanez is yes. Commissioner Byrne? Yes. Commissioner Byrne is yes. Commissioner Yee? Yes. Commissioner Yee is yes. Vice President Carter Overstone? Yes. Vice President Carter Overstone is yes. You have six yeses. Line item 15, adjournment. SFGov TV, San Francisco Government Television.